The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Indigenous women are more likely to be murdered or go missing than women of any other ethnicity in the U.S. or Canada. More likely than any other group of people, period. More people have been trying to get the MMIW movement word out in the U.S. and Canada in recent years, murdered and missing indigenous women. And it hasn't been enough. It's still a grossly underreported, disturbing, and ongoing issue. Why? Well, focusing on the U.S., Partially, perhaps because as various experts think, the problems that indigenous people experience are often perceived as separate from the rest of the U.S. population. Problems isolated to reservations in rural areas of the U.S. Problems that seem like somebody else's problem. But the majority of indigenous people now live in U.S. cities. Men, women, and children, but mostly women, are going missing and being murdered in your cities and your neighborhoods in addition to disappearing and being murdered on tribal land. So what's going on? This crisis has been ongoing for almost 500 years. Although it may not look the same as it did in the 15th and 16th centuries, the problem is still there. And I'm glad I can help not continue to ignore it now that it's been brought to my attention with this week's episode. Indigenous people have been advocating for their rights and safety from the very beginning. But it seems like now is the first time that the U.S. government and mainstream media have really started to listen to what they have to say. In the modern era, with the rise of the Internet and social media, the average American is finally able to truly see just how bad the MMIW crisis really is and just how many women and girls are going missing and being murdered. It is fucking crazy. This week, we discuss a lot of the known statistics on the MMIW crisis, possible reasons for the lack of data and media coverage, why jurisdictional confusion so much confusion, it's such an interesting part of this episode, has added greatly to this problem and a timeline of the origins of violence against indigenous people and how those early attitudes bled into actual legislation on this history is always written by the victors and the victors of colonialism did one hell of a job of whitewashing the truth when it came to the exploitation of indigenous women edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck.
Happy Monday, Meat Sack. Happy Veterans Day to all of our veteran suckers. This Veterans Day coming up later this week after this episode drops on the 11th. Not just in America, but uh, elsewhere in the world, veterans. But maybe not Russia. Maybe, maybe not members of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Maybe not all of our uh, North Korea uh, veterans. Uh, still respect for serving your government, but wish you had a better government to serve. Uh, seriously, uh, thank you to everyone who have made the noble, brave choice to put the, you know your nation's needs above your own, to serve your nation in a way that I never have and in a way that most never will. Such an honor and one I respect a great, great deal. I was just talking to Sophie Evans. She's working on some World War II, uh, you know, research right now. And um, she's, uh, you know, quite a bit younger than myself. And uh, we were just going back and forth about how, you know, she realized she didn't really think she cared that much about like war related topics and military related topics, but then found herself just, you know, tearing up uh, numerous points during the research, just realizing like the sacrifice, just uh, the bravery, the, the the courage that is displayed in times of war, the the, the trauma, the amount of trauma that, that goes on is just uh, almost uh, unfathomable for those of us who have never served. And I was just explaining to her that. As I get older, you know, that stuff just becomes um, more and more impressive to me. and More and more res- respect I feel towards those who have, you know, participated in such in- incredible moments of uh, bravery. I don't know. I'm, bl- I'm blabbering now. I'm Dan Cummins, master sucker guy who does not fantasize about eating anyone or being eaten by anyone. Uh, thank you, Lucifina, for that. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, a couple things to address. And I will address them as fast as I can. Uh, Happy birthday to the Queen of the Suck, born on Veterans Day, November 11th. The heart of the Cummins home. She's the the fucking best. I hope my uh, beautiful life adventure buddy has the best week. Uh, It's November, and it is our tradition here at Bad Magic to donate to a veteran cause every November in honor of Veterans Day. And this year, we are donating to the United Heroes League. They provide free sports equipment, game tickets, cash grants, skill development camps, and special experiences to military families across the U.S. and Canada. The United Heroes League keeps military kids active and healthy through sports while their parents serve our country. Uh, recording a bit in advance, so our amount is TBD right now. But, uh, you know, for more info on how you can help, please visit unitedheroesleague.org. Uh, especially proud this month to be a brand ambassador for Black Rifle Coffee Club. Uh, due to their veteran focus as well, the BRCC doing a lot of great shit, making great progress as they move closer and closer towards their mission of hiring 10,000 veterans, opening up a lot of retail stores right now, uh, mostly across Texas, but uh, moving into many other states and doing so many charitable acts, it is honestly hard to keep track of them all. And their Headless Horseman's Ghost Blend, Headless Horseman's Ghost Blend. Uh, delicious, if you like the pumpkin flavor, and I do. It's a pumpkin time of year. Got some uh, my little little cup right here. Uh, now for not fun news. Our private Facebook group, Cult of the Curious 2, started because Facebook shut down Cult of the Curious 1 for violating Facebook guidelines. Has been shut down for violating Facebook guidelines. Fucking Tiago. Fucking real boy. AI bots, once again, do not understand sarcasm and satire. And we really can't talk about what I talk about here on the show every week without getting zucked. Uh, eventually, it seems. We're uh, having the page reviewed, trying to get it back up. Uh, in the meantime, making plans to start building Cult of the Curious 3 already. And luckily now, after the last little fiasco, now there are so many other groups. You know, I'm so thankful that so many of you in the community have taken upon yourselves to further the community. You know, the Cult of the Curious Blue Collar Crew, Cult of the Curious Gaming, Cult of the Highly Curious, Lucifina Bound, Lucifina's Libations, Bojangles Pets. Bojangles Baseball Academy, Time Suck Metalheads, Time Suck Anime, Time Suck D&D, and so many other private Facebook groups. A lot of places to find more community. And elsewhere outside of Facebook, the Time Suck subreddit, 
Reddit's not shutting shit down. Over 12,000 members, uh, over 11,000 members on Discord, the Time Suck Discord channel. And, uh, you know, still, uh, still plenty of places to go. So fuck Facebook's fake customer service AI avatar, Tiago. Tell us we violated policies. That overzealous, scared of free speech weasel hasn't shut down the actual suck yet, though. Thank God we don't all live in uh, Zuckerberg's world. Now for one quick fun merch announcement, and then it's off to our show. Here's a hint about what this uh, merch might revolve around. We wish you Merry Christmas. We wish you Merry Christmas. Wish you Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Good tidings to bring to you and your kid. Wish you Christmas and Happy New Year. That's right. It's right. It's a triple M Christmas tea. Did you know? Did you think it was really him? <laughs> it's in the store featuring the king himself, Serenadeness on the keys for the holidays. I head on over to badmagicmerch.com and check out this truly angelic design. Last time I saw him live, he um, <laughs> he wasn't what I just did, but he's getting pretty close. Uh, you know, he's, he's older and, you know, a little bit of the range is gone. And uh, the pronunciation, I, I get it as a mush mouth. I uh, was never strongly there early on. It is not there at all anymore. At some points in certain Duty Brothers songs, it really did feel like. <laughs> Like, what? What are you fucking talking about? All right, topic time. Uh, and uh, hail Nimrod. Uh, hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. And yes, topic time now. Bit more of a serious approach this week's info if you're a new listener. Usually sneaking more levity and goofiness, but uh, wasn't feeling that as much with most of this week's uh, information. Learned a ton. Wanted to convey a lot of knowledge. Despite less jokes in this week's recipe, I think the episode's still tasty in a fucking sad way. Uh, the information in it, very important. Hoping at the topic, our spaces are chose some justice. Watched a lot of short docs on YouTube about this. Uh, definitely had a, a you know Monroe and Lindsay and Kyler chiming in more. Usually they just kind of tune out what I'm working on off my little corner. They're like, "What are you? What are you watching?" Well, I mean, you know, it's piqued their interest. Uh, watched a great long documentary, "Women of the White Buffalo." Heard a lot of tribe members speak, and, and want to get this out of the way up top. The phrases "Indigenous peoples," "Native American," "American Indian" all used interchangeably from uh, tribe member to tribe member. So just a reminder. That there's no national consensus on proper terminology. So if uh, you know if I'm using all these terms or leaning on some of these terms more than others, uh, no disrespect, no linguistic laziness involved in doing so. Just uh, multiple terms used to describe the the uh, you know same population. Uh, no disrespect ever intended uh, here to subjects who have been victimized. Uh, and as a whole, goddamn, the tribes have been victimized time and time again, especially tribal women here in the U.S. and Canada. So let's get started. Uh, numerous acronyms that the movement we're discussing here today has been called. Let's go over a few of those now to avoid any confusion should it come up when we dig in. Uh, MMIW is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Uh, MMIP, Missing and Murdered Indigenous People or Peoples. Uh, MMIWG, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. MMIWG2, MMIWG2S, Missing and Murderous, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit People. Uh, the definition of two-spirit people from the Indian Health Service, part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, is as follows. Traditionally, Native American two-spirit people were male, female, and sometimes intersexed individuals who combined activities of both men and women with traits unique to their status as two-spirit people. 
In most tribes, they were considered neither men nor women. They occupied a distinct alternative gender status. Right? This whole thing we're having now, uh, people getting all fucking fired up about transgender and whatnot. It's, it's not actually new in many ways. In tribes where two spirit males and females were referred to with the same term, the status amounted to a third gender. In other cases, two spirit females were referred to with a distinct term and therefore con- uh, constituted a fourth gender. So I didn't, I, I didn't know that. Uh, finally, there are two other acronyms often used in discussing this movement, AI, American Indian, and AN, Alaska Native People. Sometimes I will combine both and just use AI to avoid getting bogged down in a lot of just, you know, acronyms. Uh, with those terms now explained, let me add at the beginning that this isn't, it isn't possible to fully cover the MMIW crisis in the U.S. and Canada one episode. Uh, but I'm still able to summarize quite a bit of the history that has led to this crisis, crisis that is important to knowledge, uh, acknowledge, excuse me, uh, more stats than average in this one, more sources, definitely felt a greater responsibility than normal to present the most comprehensive data I could with this topic. Topic, once again, chosen by our uh, wise space lizards on Patreon. Uh, since we're unable to find a single source that listed a ton of stats, the history that led to those stats, and uh, also woven personal stories together in one place, hoping this episode, in its own weird time suck way, can add awareness and comprehensive understanding of this issue in today's tale for the cult of the curious. And anyone else who wants to swing on through, who craves more than surface stats, who likes to grab hold of an important topic and suck it hard. And uh, the MMIW movement originated in Canada in 2015, and since it has spread to the U.S., on June of 2019, the Canadian government released a big report on this crisis after a three-year inquiry into the MMIW crisis in Canada. The report called the violence against Indigenous women and girls in uh, Canada a race-based genocide of Indigenous peoples, including uh, First Nations, Inuit, and uh, Metis. Uh, this genocide has been empowered by colonial structures. And it might be Matisse. Uh, this is a serious, uh, heavy, pretty dramatic-sounding accusation, but I think that the history and some scary stats back it up. Indigenous women and girls represent only 4% of Canada's female population, but make up 16% of females killed. Damn. According to a 2014 report by the RCMP from 1980 to 2012, uh, 1,181 Indigenous women and girls killed or went missing across Canada. Per the Missing and Murdered Aboriginal Women uh, 2015 update to the National Operational Overview Report by the RCMP, uh, Indigenous women make up about 10%. 174 of the females reported missing for at least 30 days in Canada, uh, which is 1,750. 111 of these women missing due to unknown circumstances or foul play suspected. From 1980 to 2014, 6,849 reported female homicide cases in Canada, 16% of those Indigenous women. The murder rate for non-Indigenous women has decreased since 1991, but has remained stable for Indigenous women which increases the proportion of indigenous female homicide victims over the years. 2014, the homicide rate for indigenous women in Canada was 3.64 out of every 100,000. It was a 0.65 for every 100,000 for non-indigenous women. So making the murder rate about six times higher for indigenous women. And that stat more than any other is what kicked off the MMIW movement the following year in 2015. Why are indigenous women being murdered at a rate six times as high? Uh, To try and answer the question, why is the murder rate so much higher? Uh, well, you know, what can be what can be done to stop this exaggerated murder rate um, is what the MMIW movement was founded on. So how are we going to tackle this complex subject today? Well, we're going to start, obviously, by finally having my dad arrested. It's about goddamn time, isn't it? Then we're going to see how his incarceration affects the homicide rate for indigenous women going forward on this continent. 
We'll see how it affects the rate of missing indigenous women going uh, forward. We'll see how it, how this incarceration affects the rate of violent crime in North America in general going forward. Arresting my dad could solve so much more than just this one issue, right? It's time for Dad Watch to finally act. No longer just monitor from the shadows, but arrest my fucking father. And then all fathers after him, except for myself, of course. Not me, I founded it, so I feel I should be immune for you know persecution and prosecution. But seriously now. Uh, first, I will share a lot of the available stats regarding missing and murdered indigenous women. Uh, next, in the U.S., ongoing jurisdictional confusion is for sure largely behind the elevated numbers of women murdered and missing. I'll explain this a bit and point to some of the reasons why we have the stats we have, such as media presentation of negative stereotypes. Finally, we'll cover a general timeline of how the age of expiration caused the MMIW crisis and in the timeline discuss the federal legislation that has both harmed and helped indigenous people over the past two centuries. I'll explain this whole big fucking mess as best I can throughout these sections and in the recap. I'll provide some personal examples of women who've uh, gone missing or been murdered. So today's episode, not just a bunch of cold numbers and dry history. Uh, This issue is not unfortunately summed up by a collection of stats of days gone by in history. It's ongoing. Native women continue to go missing and be murdered at horrific rates today across the U.S. and Canada. And and while the movement started in Canada, as I said, to make uh, today's narrative more cohesive and less confusing, I am going to zero in on the U.S. Right, so this will mostly just be a a presentation of U.S.-based stats. Many of the same issues creating this problem in the U.S. also exist north of the border. So essentially, when I'm relaying U.S.-based stats and ongoing issues, you can assume for the most part that uh, very similar ongoing issues and stats are uh, exist in Canada. Found a lot of great recent sources for today's suck. I uh, learned a lot from watching 2019 Al Jazeera English YouTube channel video video titled uh, "The Search: Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Fault Lines," and a 2021 video posted by Vice News titled "Indigenous Women Keep Going Missing in Montana," uh, posted in 2021. Uh, the fantastic 2022 full-length documentary "Women of the White Buffalo," and a variety of other quick hit videos from numerous media channels. Data-wise, we leaned on three important uh, sources, big studies for much of the stats for this episode or summaries of studies. 2018's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, a snapshot of data from 71 urban cities in the United States. That came from the Urban Indian Health Institute, uh, Seattle Indian Health Board by Anita Lucchesi and Abigail Echohawk, the Chief Research Officer of the Seattle Indian Health Board and Director of Urban Indian Health Institute. Uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, Overview of Recent Research Legislation and Selected Issues for Congress. That was published January 10th, 2022, written by Emily J. Hansen. And finally, 2015's Injustice in Indian Country, Jurisdiction, American Law, and Sexual Violence Against Native Women, Critical, Indigenous, and American Indian Studies, Volume 1 by Amy L. Castleman. Pulled primarily from these three fantastic sources and a few others are the following stats on the MMIW crisis. Indigenous women and girls living on reservations currently murdered in the U.S. at a rate 10 times higher than the U.S. national average. Fucking 10 times as often. That is a substantial uh, increase. According to the CDC, murder the third leading cause of death for indigenous women. According to a recent statement by Desi Rodriguez Lone Bear, sociologist and social demographer at UCLA and a leading voice of the MMIW movement, Native women specifically on reservations at least, where we have more comprehensive data, this this stat is uh, or this statement is so scary. It's just so fucked up. Uh, I was talking about this at dinner the other night. Lindsay and Monroe were like, "Jesus Christ!" Uh, Native women have a better chance of being raped or murdered than they do of going to college. How fucked is that? Better odds of being raped or murdered than of going to college. 
man, when I first heard that, first heard that, that really hit me in the guts. It still does. If you're not female, think of a young sister, daughter, other relative, female friend, you know, you care about. Imagine knowing they are more likely to be raped or fucking murdered than to go to college, not even graduate from college, just go. Woo. Here are some other uh, what the fuck is happening stats. 84.3% of American Indian women, over 1.5 million women have experienced violence in their lifetime, right? 80, over 84% uh, per a 2016 National uh, Institute of Justice report. 56.1% have experienced sexual violence compared to 17% of the overall female population. Over half of all American Indian women in the U.S. have experienced sexual violence. Native, Native women are raped or attempted to be raped at a rate four times as often as U.S. women overall. And as we've explored in previous episodes, women in general raped or attempted to be raped in the U.S. at an alarming rate. One in six experienced rape or attempted rape in their lifetimes. Same study found that four out of five AI men... 81.6% have experienced violence in their lifetime, over 1.4 million men. Uh, not going to throw out a lot of male stats in this episode for obvious reasons, but felt that one was important to illustrate that violence is sadly a way of life for most Native peoples. Approximately 1,500 uh, AI missing persons have been entered into the U.S. National Crime Information Center. 2,700 murder and non-negligent homicide offenses have been reported to the Uniform Crime Reporting Program. The BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, estimates that there are 4,200 unsolved missing and murdered cases involving AI people out of a total population of 2,694,000. That's 0.0016% of the total AI population. Might not sound, and that's from a few years back. Recent census uh, information that I'll kind of go over later in the episode shows the population being higher. But anyway, that's 16 cases per 1,000 people. Uh, not that much higher than the overall homicide and missing person rate in the U.S. of 14.3 per 100,000. However, anecdotally, strong feeling amongst many living on reservations, amongst uh, those most familiar with this crisis, that the true number of missing and murdered peoples is way higher than BIA stats portray. Since many tribes do not report to the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, due to a lot of shit, due to a lot of historical distrust, anger between tribes, uh, and the Fed sent to oversee them. And when not looking at native men and women, but only looking at native women, the true total likely so much fucking higher. Also, the majority of the murders of indigenous women are believed to be committed by non-indigenous people on tribal land due to a lot of legal red tape when it comes to arresting and charging non-indigenous people with crimes on tribal land. I'll get into that mess later in this episode. Again, probably the most interesting part to me. And some stats are coming up later that will point to uh, all this. Women and girls make up the majority of the victims of violent crimes and human trafficking, but indigenous people of all ages and genders are victims of these crimes. I know we've already gone over a lot of numbers, but now let's dive into specific stats from the uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls study from 2018. The study, the single most important piece of literature when discussing this crisis, referenced by many, if not most, of the sources used in this episode. The researchers prefaced their report with, due to Urban Indian Health Institute's limited resources and the poor data collection by numerous cities, the 506 cases identified in this report are likely an undercount of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in urban areas. Again, due to distrust between the U.S. government and native nations and also due to confusing jurisdictional nightmares uh, that you know crimes on native lands fall into, thought by all the experts I came across looking into this issue that, the, that a massive amount of underreporting is going on. According to the National Crime Information Center's count by 2016, there were 5,712 reports of missing AI women and girls. But NAMUS, the U.S. Department of Justice's federal missing persons database, only logged 116. A huge discrepancy. Violence rates on reservations, roughly 10 times higher than the national average. 
and it might be almost as high off the reservations. That type of research hasn't been done for the AI women living in urban areas, even though 71% of AI people live in urban areas. Uh, The Urban Indian Health Institute began their study in 2017. Their goal was to understand why is getting data on AI people so fucking difficult, especially for those not living on tribal lands. How does law enforcement track and respond to these types of cases? How does the media report these cases? The UIHI defines an urban Indian as tribal people currently living off federally defined tribal lands in urban areas. Because of the lack of data on urban Indians, many people don't realize that the MMIW crisis also affects AI people living off reservations. And per 2016 census data, 50.2% of urban Indians identify as female. This report also included individuals who identify as LGBTQ, non-binary, and or two-spirit. First, uh, the study first answered the question, why do the majority of AI people live in urban communities? And there are two main reasons. Forced relocation due to 1950s federal relocation and termination policies. I'll discuss a little bit more detail in a little bit more detail later. Uh, And issues with getting education, employment, and housing on tribal land. The UIHI got their information from law enforcement records, state and national databases, media, social media, and community and family members. They collected data in 71 cities and 29 states. The UIHI filed Freedom of Information Act requests for case data from 1900 to 2017, but then 80% of the cases in their report come from 2000 or more recent. None of the agencies they reached out to were able to get data going back to 1900. Oldest case was from 1943. Two-thirds of, the ca- two-thirds of the cases from 2010 to 2018. The UIHI writes, this suggests the actual number of urban MMIWG cases are much higher than what we were able to identify in this study. So sadly, crime stats for American Indian people uh, just weren't fucking gathered uh, for decades while it was being collected for every other ethnicity because uh, the U.S. government just considered them, you know, separate nations, and just kind of, uh, yeah, just, just fuck them over. Just like, just like act like they didn't exist. Uh, the UIHI picked certain cities to obtain whatever info they could because these cities had a health center affiliated with UIHI, a large population of urban Indians, or had a large number of MMIWG cases. So the, uh, the UIHI found 506 cases of missing and murdered AI women and girls in 71 cities, 128 people classified as missing persons, so 25%, 280 murder cases, 56%, 98 cases uh, classified as unknown, 19%. 75% of the cases had no tribal affiliation listed. 66 of the 506 cases connected with domestic and sexual violence. Youngest victim they found, less than a year old. Oldest victim, 83. Average victim, age 29. 135 cases, 27% involved people age 18 and under. 96 cases connected with domestic violence, sexual assault, police brutality, and a lack of safety for sex workers. 42 cases domestic violence related. 14% of those involved victims age 18 or younger. Three victims pregnant when they died. 25 victims sexually assaulted when they went missing or died. 18 victims sex workers or human trafficking victims. 39% of the victims sex workers who were sexually assaulted when they died. Eight victims homeless. Six victims transgender. Seven women died from police brutality or death while in custody. And the UIHI can only find a victim's relationship to a perpetrator in 24 cases, right? So, uh, and most of the cases unsolved. Uh, 13 of 24 killed by the partner or their partner of an immediately of an immediate family member. Three killed by an immediate family member. Six killed by a serial killer. Two killed by a drug dealer. 83% of the perpetrators male. Uh, about half of those perpetrators not indigenous. Only 38% of the perpetrators convicted. Nine never charged. Four acquitted of their charges. One perpetrator had a mistrial. Right, so this uh, not a lot of convictions of the uh, one perpetrator died of suicide, making it twenty eight percent of the perpetrators who were not charged or convicted. Uh, Thirty 
alleged perpetrators had charges pending. Areas with the highest number of cases were the Southwest, all right, uh, 157, Northern Plains, 101, Pacific Northwest, 84, Alaska, 52, and California, 40. Cities with the most cases were Seattle, Albuquerque, Anchorage, Tucson, and Billings. States with the highest number of cases, New Mexico, Washington, and Arizona. And the research team had a very difficult time collecting data. Uh, Of the 71 cities and one state agency, Alaska DPS surveyed, 40 provided some level of data, 14 uh, did not provide any data, 18 Freedom of Information Act requests still pending by the cutoff date. 33 of the 40 agencies did search their records. 10 of the 40 confirmed cases that the UIHI had already logged, gave information from memory, or gave partial data. And uh, now now let's get into some specific interesting uh, moments here. The UIHI gave specific examples of the struggles they had with collecting data. It said uh, a representative from Juneau Police in Alaska explained that they received UIHI's initial request at the same time as an unaffiliated project at another institution filed a request for data on sexual assault on Alaska Native women. The agency assumed any request on violence against Alaska Native women must have come from the same source. So when they filed the other, excuse me, when when they filed the other institution's request, they closed out UIHIs. It's fucking lazy. Uh, similarly, in an October 2018 phone call, a representative from the Los Angeles police claimed UIHIs two prior FOIA requests to their agency had been closed out by being lost in the system due to understaffing. They had a backlog of thousands of requests that three staff members were responsible for filing and many were not answered. As UIHI's first request was or uh yeah, or were rerouted to the wrong agency as UIHI's second request was. Uh, an entire year later, the agency expected UIHI to file a third request and get back in line. Uh, man, fucking California, man, in their fucking dumpster fire of state and local funding. What a shit show. Not surprised they had so many problems obtaining data from a state government that should run smoother than any other state government. California has the highest state tax in the nation, 13.3%. As a 2019 fifth highest per capita income, and because they're a huge population base, uh, so many high income earners, they collect the largest amount of taxes of any state by fucking miles. In the fiscal year of 2021, the state of California collected a total of 248.19 billion U.S. dollars in tax revenue. New York collected the second highest amount of any state, 93.5 billion. <laughs> it's not even close. Uh, and California has a sales tax is over 10% in some areas, city taxes, county taxes, property taxes. They tax the fuck out of everything. What are they doing with that money? Honestly, every agency that interacts with the general public seems to be severely understaffed and frankly, fucking incompetent. I've lived numerous years of my adult life in three states, Washington, Idaho, and California. My interactions with the government of California have been the most infuriating by far consistently, and it's not even close. As someone who tours all over the U.S., sells merch all over the U.S., I have to interact with various state governments for taxes. Well, I don't but my accountants do. And Ginny and Bree and the fabulous team at Tate Accounting, they have more problems with California. Lindsay deals with this too because she works with them. And every year, it's something with California. Uh, regardless of how much or how little I work there, every fucking year, it's absurd. Shit gets lost routinely. Uh, you know, the, the they bill us for the wrong shit routinely. When I lived there, they used to make me spend days gathering info and being stuck on hold for hours and hours to prove that I didn't owe them taxes for years. I never lived there over and over again. And if I didn't prove that they were essentially trying to steal from me, it was my fault somehow. And I got penalized. Not surprised at all the continual uh, fuck ups when it came to uh, providing records for MMIW and this suck. The California state government should honestly be a case study in how to never, ever run a government. 
California boasts perhaps the greatest natural resources of any state in the nation, along with Silicon Valley, other high-tech industry epicenters, most taxes by far, and they just fuck it up. Like, like every year. Oh my God, it's a fucking joke. If California was my kid, I would be cutting up its credit cards and sending it to its room until it came up with an actual plan for how to not be a fucking dipshit every fucking year. Also love California overall. By the way, I just fucking despise their government. It's just a piece of shit. Refocusing now. Let's look at the UIHI trying to get data from the state next to the suck dungeon. Uh, In another case, the chief of police in Billings, Montana, after having received a second FOIA request from UIHI, wrote, your assertion that we have ignored a similar request from eight months ago is false. Unless you sent your request elsewhere, this is the first time we've seen it. UIHI responded with screenshots of the initial request and of the automatic email received stating that the request was received and was processing, but UIHI never received any response to the email uh, or to the record request to date. What a fucking dick the Billings Chief of Police is being here. Just apologize, right? Everyone makes mistakes. You made yours. Own up to it. I I promise I won't fill this uh, episode up with tons of examples from life that just kind of relate, but I can't stand it when people don't own their shit when they make mistakes. Just, just own it, especially when they're in a position of power and then they get cocky over previously thinking that, that you fucked up, not them. I mess up all the time and I apologize when I mess up. It's actually not that hard. Uh, I won't say which comedy club did this, but recently I went somewhere and they forgot to put my opener's family on the guest list for tickets and the show was now sold out. Tried to tell them that his mom couldn't come in. They forgot to put snacks or beverages uh, in the green room for us, which were requested months in advance. Also booked uh, another opening act, even though I brought my own opening act and they knew about that months in advance. All that information communicated with the club months in advance and they just didn't read anything. And the manager tried to get shitty with me out the gate, told me I was causing him a lot of problems. Oh man, you're causing me a lot of problems. Uh, when I insisted he do whatever he needed to do to find seats for the uh, opener's family. And then instead of, uh, you know, prep for my show, I had to look, get screenshots from Lindsay showing that uh, he had in fact been emailed all of this information and then I made sure he just didn't ignore me like the sheriff ignored the UIHI, right? I pointed out that he did receive the information request and it was glorious because I was able to walk up to him and tell him to his face something effective. Hey man, you see those texts I just sent you? For the record, I didn't cause any of the problems you're dealing with tonight. You did. You fucked literally everything up that you could fuck up. So don't blame me for shit or any mistakes that you fucking make going forward. And you know, he didn't like being talked to that way. <laughs> no one does. But also knew I was right. And since I was right there in his face, and maybe a little heated. He apologized. It was a small victory. I savored it because most of the time in my experience, people get to uh, get away with being dicks like this fucking billing sheriff is being. Okay, really going to refocus on the narrative now. Uh, 30% of the agency survey changed, charged a fee for data. If the UIHI paid every invoice, it would have cost over $4,400. Taxes should be fucking covering that. Why the fucking pieces of shit? Uh, their budget was $68. They were unable to access some data simply because they could not pay their invoices. Wish we would have known about them. We could have made our monthly donation uh, for them, you know, and help them get what they needed. They also had trouble getting case information due to racial uh, misclassification. Nine cities unable to search for American Indian, Native American, or even Alaska Native in their systems. How crazy is that? These people have been on the land the longest by far, and they're not even in the system as a, as a racial option, as an ethnic option, as if they don't exist, which is how a lot of Native American women interviewed in Docs I Watched said that they feel like, like they don't exist in most people's eyes. Like they don't matter to the culture at large, which is why they're being murdered and going missing at alarming rates. Uh, in Seattle, the UIHI was given two overlapping lists. They were told that uh, N was the abbreviation for black people uh, through the early 80s. Fucking what? No more info there. 
Uh, what did the N stand for? Uh, Negro would be best case. What the fuck? Uh, other police departments gave them data with uh, Indian American surnames like Singh. That's awkward. Uh, not uh, uh, native to this continent, obviously. A very different Indian. Just a bit insulting. Finally, uh, that 2022 Missing and Murdered Indigenous People report by Emily J. Hansen further illustrates how violence affects men, women, and children who identify as American Indian or Alaskan Native. A few of these stats uh, are almost identical to ones I've you know mentioned already, but, but worth repeating, just a few. Uh, during their lifetime, 84% of AI women experienced violence. 56% of AI women experienced sexual violence. 56% of AI women experienced physical violence by an intimate partner. 49% of AI women experienced stalking. Damn, 66% of AI women experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner. Uh, 96% of AI women who did experience sexual violence experienced it from a non-native interracial perpetrator. 96%. That's really disturbing. That's a, that's, that's a big one. Clear indicator that for many people who are not native, native women are seen as less than human sexual objects, right? To be mistreated, someone to be abused if they don't do what you want them to. That view has been around, as we'll see in graphic historical record once we get into the timeline, ever since Columbus first encountered Native peoples in the Americas in 1492. And because of some jurisdictional bullshit I'll get into, non-Native perpetrators are able to get away with abusing Native women more than they could get away with abusing any other group. Native women aren't just dealing with non-Native people, seeing them as uh, less than, also dealing with more and more uh, overall adversity. Kids Count, a project of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, a premier source of data on children and families in the U.S., found that 35% of AI youth reported two or more adverse life experiences defined as frequent socioeconomic hardship, parental divorce or separation, parental death, parental incarceration, family violence, neighborhood violence, living with someone who's mentally ill or suicidal, living with someone who has substance abuse problems or a racial bias. For comparison, 18% of all kids surveyed reported two or more adverse life experiences, about half the amount of native kids. AI youth also had a death rate of 32 for every 100,000 compared to 25 for every 100,000 in the overall U.S. population. Indigenous people are also at a much higher risk for being victims of human trafficking and sex trafficking, much higher. According to the FBI, uh, some data published just last year in 2021, 40% of the victims of sexual trafficking are Native women, yet Native women only represent 1% of the general U.S. population. That is fucking absurd. That's crazy. Researcher Emily J. Hansen and others have a big reason for these inflated numbers of sexual violence and human trafficking uh, with indigenous women. They think it has to do with the uh, so-called man camps in the U.S. and Canada. Man camps are defined as areas of temporary housing for oil and gas workers who are characteristically well-paid, male, and non-indigenous. Man camps bring a surge of people into rural areas, also bring an increase in crime, drug, alcohol offenses, and sexual violence. Because the camps are established in these rural areas, local law enforcement often doesn't have the resources to deal with elevated levels of crime. Police, for example, if the, if the tribe even has a police force, they may not be able to monitor for sex offenders in these camps. One case study comes from the Bakken oil producing region in North Dakota and Montana. Sexual assault, domestic violence, human trafficking all increased where, quote, unquote, uh, extractive industries were established. The Bureau of Justice Statistics did a study of violent victimization in this region from 2006 to 2012. Uh, violent victimization rates reported in, in an increase of 23% in the Bakken region declined 8% in non-Bakken regions during this period. Serious violent victimization, homicide, sexual assault, aggravated assault, robbery increased 38% in the Bakken region when these workers came in. Unlawful sexual contact, like uh, statutory rape, increased 45% when these man camps got going. Domestic violence increased 27%. Serious domestic violence increased 47%. 
and violent victimization increased for Native Americans more than any other ethnicity by far. Now, before looking further into why these elevated stats are what they are, let me summarize why we don't have as much data as we should about all this. Uh, the UIHI gives six primary reasons for a lack of data on, these, on this crisis. Underreporting, racial misclassification, poor relationships between law enforcement and indigenous communities, poor record keeping, racism in the media, and my dad consistently refusing to address his fucking role in any of this. Drives me crazy. He's so cagey. He just will not confess to the blood, obviously, on his hands. Or maybe number six is lack of relationships between journalists and indigenous communities. Uh, addressing numbers one and five, the media plays a big role in the lack of data. When it comes to uh, you know reporting on cases, it can be problematic. The modern stereotype of Native Americans is that they struggle with drug and alcohol abuse and depend on the government for survival. Essentially, the stereotype is that they are lazy drunks, unworthy of sympathy for their plight. They did this to themselves kind of vibes. Is there more alcoholism amongst AI peoples and other U.S. ethnicities? Yes, there is. 14.9% of AI people uh, report being addicted to alcohol compared to 8.6% of Hispanics, 8.4% of Caucasians, 7.4% of African-Americans, and 4.6% of Asians. There are no stats that I'm aware of for the rate of alcoholism on tribal land specifically. Sure, it varies quite a bit from one reservation to the next. Uh, Looking at a chart labeled children and families that receive public assistance by race and ethnicity in the U.S., In 2019, 37% of American Indian children received public assistance compared to 13% of Asians, 43% of African Americans, 29% of Hispanic kids, 15% of Caucasian kids, and 23% of kids overall. So yeah, American Indians suffer from alcoholism and rely on government assistance more than average. But are are those reasons to look down on them? Well, no, especially when you look at why the stats are elevated. Is a greater rate of poverty, uh, uh, you know, and reliance on governmental governmental assistance and thus poverty, uh, excuse me, is all of this a symptom of laziness or collective clinical depression affecting multiple cultures of Native Americans, right? NativeHope.org writes, this modern stereotype was created through acts of colonization and cultural assimilation. The Native Hope editorial staff adds that before colonization, most Native American societies respected women, viewed them as sacred. Women held positions of power, did a lot of physical labor in their communities. Tribal communities took care of one another. There was no government assistance. Life was hard. It was hard for fucking everyone hundreds of years ago. But there was a, you know, a belief that life was good. There was a, plenty of buffalo for everyone, plenty of land to hunt, plenty of game, clean rivers, streams full of salmon and other fish. There were wars, but also peace treaties and prosperous times. The tribes lived with the land, not off of it. This worked for them. Alcoholism wasn't a problem because alcohol was not around. And uh, you know, over the years since it has been around, this, this, this firewater mythology that Native peoples are somehow genetically inferior and more susceptible to alcoholism has added to prejudice against American Indian peoples, according to many experts, and it's not true. Uh, there's no evidence that Native Americans are more biologically susceptible to substance use disorders. There's old research that's bullshit that purports that myth, but uh, they're not actually more susceptible than any other group says Joseph Gohn, uh, associate professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and many others. Uh, American Indians don't metabolize or react to alcohol differently than whites do uh, in a way that would make them more susceptible, susceptible, excuse me, to alcoholism. They don't have a higher prevalence of, you know, known risk genes. Uh, so why is, is the rate of alcoholism so much higher amongst natives than non-natives? Well, because my fucking dad won't leave him alone. If my dad was constantly killing and kidnapping and raping your family, I bet you'd fucking want to drink more. No. Uh, this is, this is why, I think. Trauma, right? This is what a lot of other people think. That trauma is the reason for excessive alcoholism. There is a correlation between alcoholism and trauma. 
You have your land taken, your traditional way of life destroyed, your gods erased, your daughters raped. Uh, Yeah, motherfucker, you're going to want to hit that sauce a little harder than the average bear. Right? You just, you're fucking more sad about your life. European colonizers, uh, colonizers came along, truly turned the lives of tribes upside down. Their culture was gutted in a way most of us will never be able to comprehend. They, they brought new diseases. They killed an estimated 90% of all natives. They brought entirely foreign concepts of land ownership, of living off the land, not with the land. They brought with them patriarchal Christian views, did not understand or accept the structure of indigenous societies or spirituality. They despised the ways the tribes uh, had traditionally lived as being sinful. Native kids forced to go to schools where they were fucking beat and scolded by priests and nuns and others for speaking na- their native tongues or, or wearing their native clothes. They were told their spiritual practices were essentially satanic. Boys had to cut their hair, that they grew long because, you know, tribally, uh, that was considered uh, a powerful, right? right? Uh, a sign of physical strength and virility to have long hair. All that cut off, how emasculating. Apparently all those priests and nuns forgot about the story of Samson. What the fuck does short hair have to do with uh, being Christian? What does it, it say in the Bible? A dude shouldn't have uh, fucking long braided hair. Well, long braided hair actually is condemned in 1 Corinthians. But in numerous other books, such as Numbers, there's prolonged hair verses. It's almost like the book uh, is uh, extremely contradictory and confusing. So maybe we shouldn't get bogged down in various inconsequential rules. Natives are forced to convert to a religion they didn't want, a culture they didn't understand, speak a, a new tongue that was unlike any tongue they'd ever heard. The core of their identities stripped in every possible way. And on top of all that, the women seen by the culture that now surrounded them uh, as godless whores. Indigenous women experienced unprecedented levels of rape and violence at the hands of European colonizers for centuries. We'll get into some early, very disturbing tales in the timeline here soon. According to Andrea Smith's paper, Not an Indian Tradition, the sexual colonization of native peoples, initial Europeans viewed indigenous people as dirty. They didn't wear as much clothes as they did. Right? This lack of clothing made them polluted with sexual sin. They were seen as less than human, therefore as rapeable. And a lot of the MMIW experts strongly feel that this old stereotype still influences law enforcement and media in the modern era. When the media does a story on a missing or murdered Native American woman, they, they too often, in the opinion of MMIW experts, overemphasize any past mistakes, right? Criminal record. Uh, they turn to victim blaming. The UIHI analyzed how the media covers MMIWG cases in the cities they studied. They noted the majority of media coverage focused on issues on reservations, not urban Indians. Uh, UIHI explains why that's a problem, saying... Through coverage of reservation-based violence, or though coverage of reservation-based violence is critical, this bias does work to collectively minimize the issue in urban spaces. It bolsters stereotypes of American Indian and Alaska Native people as solely living on reservations in rural areas. It perpetuates perceptions of tribal lands as violence-ridden environments, ultimately uh, is representative of an institutional bias of media coverage on this issue. In regards to MMIW cases, the media has allegedly consistently used language that blames victims for crimes committed against them. The UIHI uh, analyzed the media's use of violent language in their coverage, coverage of cases defined as language that engages in racism or misogyny or racial stereotyping, including references to drugs, alcohol, sex work, gang violence, victim criminal history, victim blaming, making excuses for the perpetrator, misgendering transgender victims, racial misclassification, false information on cases, not naming the victim, publishing images slash video of the victim's death. 46 media outlets use violent language. 36 media outlets uh, use violent language in 50% or more cases. 22 media outlets use violent language in all cases. The most common types of violent language uh, used was references to drugs or alcohol, coverage of trans women victims that misgendered the victim, and references to the victim's criminal history. 
Other violent language included references to sex work, gave false info on the case, or did not name the victim, made excuses for the perpetrator, or used victim-blaming language, showing images or video of victim death. One of the concluding statements of the study was this study illustrates the maze of injustice that impacts MMIWG cases and demonstrates how they're made to disappear in life, the media, and in data. UIHI discovered a striking level of inconsistency between community, law enforcement, and media understandings of the magnitude of this violence. If this report demonstrates one powerful conclusion, it is that we rely solely is it is that if we rely solely on law enforcement or media for an awareness or understanding of this issue, we will have a deeply inaccurate picture of the realities minimizing the extent to which our urban American Indian and Alaska Native sisters experience this violence. This inaccurate picture limits our ability to address this issue at policy, programming, and advocacy levels. In 2021, PBS published an interview between author uh, of the 2018 UIHI study. Man, so many acronyms. Sorry, my mouth hates acronyms. Abigail Echohawk and journalist Anna Nawaz, they compared the media attention to the Gabby Petito case, a white woman who went missing and was determined to have been murdered to the media attention of the MMIW crisis. Gabby Petito was reported missing in Wyoming in September 2021. In just the state of Wyoming, 710 indigenous people reported missing from 2011 to 2020. The majority of them women. And none of the hundreds of those women have received even a tiny fucking fraction of the media exposure of Gabby Petito. Abigail told uh, Nawaz, we're talking about a crisis that didn't start five years ago, 10 years ago, but one that has been going more than hundreds of years. We've seen Native women go missing and murdered at astronomical rates. But despite knowing this within our communities and having the stories, we see an underreporting of them in the data, which makes it harder for us to advocate for and to show the disparity that exists in our communities and the loss of our loved ones. She also said when families attempt to report someone missing, law enforcement consistently downplays it. Over and over, they ask families if the woman, woman uh, ran away, if they were drinking, if they do sex work. That we see prejudices and stereotypes against indigenous peoples and people of color play out in the underreporting because nobody's listening to us. We also see a maze of jurisdiction that exists only for indigenous peoples in this country because of the laws that exist on tribal lands. I worked with a family where they actually spent three days with law enforcement trying to decide who had jurisdiction. And in those three days, their loved one remained missing and nobody was looking for them. This is a common complaint that it takes forever for law enforcement to act in MMIW cases. And I'll explain why. Very special circumstances. Uh, when it comes to missing and murdered persons' cases, the first 48 to 72 hours critical to solving them. Experts say over and over that the chance of solving a homicide cut in half if police don't, uh, you know, get their first viable lead in the first 48 hours. And in the first in the first 72 hours, described over and over as being crucial when it comes to finding missing per- missing persons. After 72 hours, most of the leads, you know, have usually dried up. Nature, other factors related to too much time passing by have erased a lot of important evidence. A very confusing jurisdictional nightmare seems to be the main reason behind this delay in actions, at least on tribal lands. Per the Bureau of Indian Affairs, there are approximately 400 tribal justice systems in the U.S. These systems vary in size and structure. Tribal courts only have jurisdiction for certain offenses, generally very minor ones, usually can only prosecute crimes committed in Indian country. Multiple jurisdictions could be responsible for the investigation and prosecution of a single crime. Currently, tribal courts have, uh, you know, only have jurisdiction over crimes that occur on tribal land and involve an indigenous offender, regardless of victim's race. Uh, the Major Crimes Act of 1885 established federal jurisdiction for certain crimes committed by indigenous people on tribal land. Murder, manslaughter, kidnapping, maiming, some sexual abuse felonies, but not all, incest, assault against minors, felony child abuse or neglect, arson, burglary, robbery, and other crimes. If an offense is committed by an indigenous person on tribal land, but it falls under the MCA, 
and is contained in tribal code, the tribal court and the government can prosecute. But state governments may choose not to prosecute. Uh, Public Law 280, passed by Congress in 1953, transferred responsibility for prosecution of major crimes from the federal government to states. In 1953, six states became mandatory PL-280 states. And this, I know this is confusing. It's supposed to be confusing in this explanation because that's the fucking problem is that it's confusing. Alaska, California, Minnesota, Nebraska, Oregon, Wisconsin. And uh, after this, the federal government could no longer prosecute MCA offenses in those states. But a lot of the states weren't real clear on this for a while and the tribes living in those states. In all states, whether there is federal or state oversight for major crimes, it sure seems like there's very little funding for the proper amount of law enforcement to handle these crimes. Some states have become optional PL-280 states, which means the state may get involved in some cases, which mucks things up even fucking more. In 1968, PL-280 changed again, required tribes to consent for a state to assume optional jurisdiction. <laughs> no tribes have consented as of today, even though some states were mandated to be 280. So then there's confusion of, are they 280? Are they not? Tribes may petition the government to reassume jurisdiction from the state without the state's consent, like through the federal government. It's all so confusing. Emily Hansen explains some of this confusion. She says, the determination of jurisdiction for offenses that occur on tribal lands may also depend on the tribal membership status of the offender and the victim. If the offender is a member of a tribe and the victim is not, then the tribe may have jurisdiction along with the state or federal government as determined by the MCA and PL-280. If neither the offender nor the victim are members of a federally recognized tribe, but the offense occurs on tribal lands, then the federal or state government has jurisdiction, but the tribe generally does not. In most circumstances, tribes do not have jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders, even if the victim is a tribal member. That last sentence is thought to be a major factor in MMIW cases. In most circumstances, tribes do not have jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders, even if the victim is a tribal member. Think about that. If a dude at some man camp, for example, is believed to have raped and murdered an indigenous woman who's gone missing, the tribe may not be able to bring any charges against them. An art teacher at the Al Bonnet School on the Lakota Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, Sunrose Ironshell, interviewed for Deborah Anderson's that a Women of the White Buffalo doc that came out this year, said, here's the problem. Tribes who are quote-unquote sovereign cannot press charges on people who are non-native. Then speaking to a producer holding the camera, she says, you could murder me right now and walk away scot-free. And many rural, and she's not fucking wrong. It's so fucking wild. And many reservations, the nearest state or federal officer who could arrest the perpetrator could be hundreds of miles away, right? Could be fucking three, four hours drive away. By the time they arrive, crucial evidence could be disposed of. The perpetrator's gone into hiding. You know, if they're taking several days to make the trip because they think the victim might have just ran away or maybe is just at a party or something, it gets even worse. Author Amy, Amy Castleman further explains these jurisdictional issues in her report, Injustice in Indian Country. And uh, I've brought up her name already, but she's an adjunct professor of ethnic studies at the San Francisco State University, California State University, Stanislaus and Laney College. Indian Country, approximately 56 million acres, is the legal term for all the reservations and land held in trust for indigenous people. Castleman writes, today, due to a complicated system of criminal jurisdiction, non-Native Americans cannot commit crimes against American Indians in much of the Indian country, uh, or they can, excuse me, commit crimes uh, against American Indians with virtual impunity. This has created what some call a modern-day hunting ground in which Native women are specifically targeted by non-Native men for sexual violence because they can get away with it. I mean, if you're a sexual predator and you know you have a real good chance of getting away with abducting, harming, fucking torturing, raping, killing some tribal woman. You can't do any of that to a non-tribal woman and have a good chance of getting away with it. Well, of course you're going to fucking target indigenous women. I mean, might as well fucking tattoo targets on their faces. 
Amy Castleman offers a detailed explanation of how early colonization started the MMIW crisis in U.S. abroad, provides a timeline of how federal law has continued to contribute to the crisis. She writes, violence against Native women is not traditional before Europeans arrived in what is now known as the United States of America. Sexual violence against Native women was virtually unheard of. In the rare instance when it did occur, Native communities used their own functioning justice system to swiftly address the perpetrator and restore balance to the community. Colonization and westward expansion forcefully and violently removed indigenous people from their land at the same time the government created strict laws regulating movement, culture, and the criminal justice system. Today, when a crime is committed on tribal land, the police must determine location, racial identity of the perpetrator and victim, and their relationship to each other and the community in order to first establish jurisdiction before fucking anything is actually investigated. As a result of this complicated system of jurisdiction, sexual perpetrators have learned that Indian country is the most opportune place to prey on women. Gasselman continues with, uh, when a non-native man specifically targets a native woman in Indian country for sexual assault, because jurisdictional conflict allows him to, we must contextualize these conflicts in a larger narrative of predatory violence that occurs on a societal level. Rather than occurring as an individual pathology in which sexual predators manipulate jurisdiction to get away with sexual assault, jurisdiction, the prosecution of sexual violence against native women must be read as part of a colonial pathology that has always constructed native women as inherently rapeable and violatable. Heavy shit, right? Yes, a lot of info. Important info to understand. Let's now begin the timeline of the MMIW crisis from its origin in the colonial period. The laws that have reinforced the crisis, modern efforts to make a change. I'll, I'll go over some of this information again. So hopefully by the end, we all kind of understand it. In the recap, you know, I'll share my own thoughts about all of this. And uh, yeah, uh, maybe maybe it'll fucking help in some way. I'll encourage you to send in your thoughts as well. Help us, Lucifina. But first, it seems like the least intrusive place for this week's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. 
All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to the ads that I have to think are probably a lot lighter than uh, this week's information. Now it is timeline time for real. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. The foundations of the MMIW crisis, according to the many voices of those who investigate it uh, the most, were established during a period of history called the Age of Exploration and Discovery, a period characterized by European nations sending explorers on voyages to the New World, which led to the colonization of indigenous lands and mass enslavement of indigenous people. When Europeans arrived in the New World, they were met with uh, seemingly infinite natural resources. However, these resources already owned by indigenous people in some sense, indigenous people in many cases who were very open very willing to trade with the new arrivals. But that's not how Europe historically you know, did shit. In the wars leading up to colonization and during colonization, no one on earth fought more than Europeans. No one has ever loved war. 
more than my ancestors. When Columbus first sailed across the ocean blue in 1492, the Muscovite-Lithuanian wars were ongoing. It would last until 1583. The Hundred Years Croatian-Ottoman War was about to begin in 1494. The Italian War of 1494 to 1498 would begin. The War of Hungarian Succession had just ended. The Russo-Swedish War would kick off in 1495. Two years after that, the Cornish Rebellion of 1497. Colonization would lead to numerous wars between colonial powers. Between 1689 and 1763, there were no less than four massive colonial wars that involved France, Britain, and Spain and their respective colonial possessions. Europeans uh, weren't in the, the bartering and trading mode when it came to the New World. They had superior weaponry, thanks to steel and gunpowder, and they were much more interested in taking shit than negotiating for anything. But they were Catholics. They were very pious. Well, the Spaniards, uh, they, were all, they were all Christian. Very pious, righteous in all things. Uh, at least they wanted to tell themselves that. And when the first colonizers showed up, you know, the, the Spaniards, the Pope was uh, super powerful in the late 15th century, early 16th century, uh, more powerful than any individual nation's ruler. And to get Pope approval, colonizers needed a way to legitimate taking indigenous people's land and resources. The first Europeans used uh, papal bulls, decrees from the Pope, God's most righteous, earthbound, big hat wearing motherfucker. And these papal bulls were considered supreme law. The Pope authorized and therefore God authorized colonial enslavement and colonization. Pope Alexander VI, one of the six best popes named Alexander fucking ever through that point in history, issued Intercatera, a papal bull on May 4th, 1493, that literally granted all the lands of the New World to the Catholic monarchs, King Ferdinand II of Aragon, Queen Isabella I of Castile. Written in this bull was the sentence, and we make, appoint, and depute you and your said heirs and successors, lords of them, with full and free power, authority, and jurisdiction of every kind. Uh, car blanche, motherfuckers! This would be interpreted by rulers as God-given right to take just, uh, you know, not anything just from the land of the New World, but fr from the people as well. Uh, hear ye, hear ye, tis I, God, and it would give me great pleasure for ye Spaniards to plant the New World as your godly hearts see fit. There are many peoples there, and none of them have read my book, so fuck them. And also, they are not European and do not look or act like us. Yes, us, because God is European. So, even if they do read my book, still fuck them. Go, go henceforth and claim it, in my name, whatever. Europeans use this and numerous other papal bulls and royal permissions to colonize and steal from indigenous people with impunity. In order to make it uh, feel not only legal, but moral, Europeans also manufactured ways to justify what they were doing. In a very uh, Nazi-like dehumanizing fashion, Castleman explains that by portraying Native people as fucking savage, barbaric, subhuman. I added the word fucking. European colonizers were able to justify their legal actions. In many indigenous societies, when colonizers showed up, women were the ones who had power and ownership over land and resources. And the Spaniards rightfully saw this as fucking gross. Ugh! Women? <laughs> power? What? People with vaginas had power. Pussy power. Ugh, ah, yikes. How very not godlike. Ugh, satanic. Uh, don't worry, God will make things right in this narrative. <laughs> he, capital H ladies, he will beat those silly pussy owners into godly submission. Uh, seriously though, female power, uh, non-royal female power, foreign concept to the Europeans. Uh, according to Amy Castleman's Injustice in Indian Country, Jurisdiction, American Law, and Sexual Violence Against Native Women, uh, women were now perceived as threats to them gaining power in this new territory. She writes, as colonizers realized that, realized that divesting entire communities of their resources necessitated the disenfranchisement of Native women in particular, constructing the Native woman as a dangerous other was a crucial tool of conquest. 
Because indigenous societies were so different, so foreign to what they knew, Europeans characterized them as uncivilized, lacking law and order, immoral. They needed to be taught the right way to live. Castleman summarized that the uh, thought process of these early Europeans was if native people had no justice, the logic went they were by nature dangerous and violent, right? And uh, violence against them now became an act of self-defense. If they were unintelligent, then they were not able to manage their own resources, thus naturalizing European appropriation. Right? If their bodies were not dominated by Christian morals, then they were available for domination by Western Europeans, which normalized gender violence against Native women because they weren't really women. It's not like they had souls. Uh, Native women were viewed as sexually immoral or even per- perverse because of things like nudity, dominance relationships, and control over their sexuality. Ugh! How dare those godless whores choose which dicks they preferred to let in their filth pusses? Uh, they were seen as lustful in a way that was dangerous. How colossally fucked up. How much damage has this colonial fucking vision of Christianity done to women? To our culture as a whole. It reverberates to this day. To the victor go the spoils, but the victor's morals don't have to be superior to those they dominate. Might, might make right in a legal sense oftentimes, but not in a moral sense. Uh, Let's see how these decrees and cultural perspectives were carried out in, in real world actions. One of the first pieces of evidence of human trafficking of indigenous women was a letter from Christopher Columbus. I've heard of him. To uh, Donna Juana, sorry, sorry, I think that actually is the name. I don't know why that really cracked me up. Donna Juana, it's, it's, it's like Don, Donna, Donna Juana, De La Torre. Donna Juana! Uh, De La Torre, a, a nurse in Queen Isabella's court, a sister of a crew member. Uh, this letter was written in 1500. Columbus wrote in a part of this letter, a hundred Castellanos are easily obtained for a girl and there are many elders who begin to locate girls. Those from nine to 10 are actually in highest demand. Holy shit, just Chris just fucking casually writing this down to a female member of the Queen's Court. Not even hiding it. Why do you think these girls were in such demand? To be used domestically as homemakers, housekeepers? Uh, maybe some. Uh, what was most of it? Mm, probably to be fucked. To be trafficked. Child sex slaves. Uh, in October of 1492, after touching down in the Bahamas in Cuba, Columbus landed on Hispaniola, which is the land making up present-day uh, Idaho and Montana. No, Haiti and Dominican Republic. Now, here he interacted with the area's principal inhabitants, the uh, Tayano people. As an October 12th, 1492 letter that Christopher Columbus wrote said, in order that they might develop a very friendly disposition towards us, because I knew that there were people, because I knew that they were a people who could be, who could, Jesus Christ, who could better be freed and converted to our holy faith by love than by force, gave to them some red caps and other glass beads which they hung about their necks and many other things of slight value of which they took much pleasure. They all go quite naked as their mothers bore them. And also the women, although I didn't see more than one really young girl, all that I saw were young men and none of them more than 30 years old, very well built of very handsome bodies. Mm. Very fine faces. Yes, yes, yes. They ought to be good servants. I'm, I'm imagining him reading it in this tone. These are the real words. Words. They are to be good servants and of good skill, for I see that they repeat very quickly whatever is said to them. Uh, Good servants, not good people, to build trade relationships with, to coexist with, to dominate militarily. Uh, Okay, fine. It was the age of conquering. But once conquered, how fucked that they didn't see them as equals to be converted into citizens? In 1493, Columbus uh, wrote a letter to Ferdinand and Isabella discussing the uh, Tayano people and offering to send the royals and slave people in return for ships and resources needed for a second voyage wrote uh they have no iron or steel nor any weapons nor are they f- nor are they fit thereunto not because they 
not because, sorry, that's just the fucking sentence structure is weird because it was written a long time ago. Not because uh, they be not a well-formed people. Maybe if I read it in that voice, it's And of fair stature. But they are most wondrously timorous. Uh, such they are incurably timid. They are artless and generous with what they have to such degree as none would believe but him who had seen it. Of anything they have, if it be asked for, they never say no, but do rather invite the person to accept it and show as much lovingness as though they would give their hearts. Their highness may see that I shall give them as much gold as they may need with very little aid with which their highness will give me spices and cotton at once, as much as their highness will order to be shipped and as much as they shall order to be shipped of mastic and aloe wood, as much as they shall order to be shipped and slaves as many as they shall order to be shipped. <laughs> if somebody was talking like that today, like, hey, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Just fucking spit it out. What are you, why are you talking that way, you fucking weirdo? And, and, if, and if I don't, as much as they shout order to me, just fucking tell me. Uh, but yeah, what a lovely people they are. So kind-hearted, so helpful, so friendly and generous. They'll make perfect slaves what I'm hearing. I can see in moments like this how conspiracies about a small cabal of nefarious leaders want uh, to enslave humanity, how they get going. That's exactly what a small cabal of leaders actually did in various parts of the world during the uh, colonial era. Your Highness will rejoice in the human bounty we deliver to you. So timid, so generous, so naked with fine faces, handsome, handsome bodies. So unwell, how wicked certain delights of the flesh are. You can easily trick them into molesting them however you fancy. And if they resist, you can beat or kill them. And it doesn't matter. They're not real people. That's the best part. <laughs> They're like hellish monkeys with our souls to be used as we see fit. <laughs> or maybe he didn't insinuate anything that uh, inflammatory. But uh, after, uh, you know, I review a few more historical records, it'll become clear that this, this is basically what that cunt thought. Uh, there's evidence to show that Christopher Columbus did traffic many indigenous women and children with either foreknowledge of or indifference of to their fate as sex slaves, as is written in one historical review. In 2018, a meme went viral of a quote supposedly written by Christopher Columbus about human trafficking. It said, Columbus provided native sex slaves to his men. In addition to putting the natives to work as slaves in his gold mines, Columbus also sold sex lives to his men, some as young as nine. Columbus and his men also raided villages for sex and sport. In the year 1500, Columbus wrote, A hundred castellanos are, is easily obtained for a woman as for a farm, and it is very general, and there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls, those from nine to 10 are now in demand. That's not quite what he wrote. His Facebook post includes a quote from the same letter mentioned earlier, according to Snopes, the internet's fact checker. At the time of the letter, Columbus had been removed as governor from the territories after Spain received reports of his treatment of the indigenous people. Uh, he was imprisoned before being pardoned by King Ferdinand. So this quote uh, told that reported time likely false. However, it spoke to actual truth. Snopes adds, however, in the broader context of his letter to uh, Donna Juana de la Torre, Columbus appears to have been neutrally describing the fact that girls as young as nine years old were sold as slaves. In a particular passage quoted in the meme, he was neither endorsing nor criticizing his practice nor admitting that he personally took part in it. But then during the second voyage in 1495, Columbus could not find as much gold as he'd expected. So he did capture indigenous people, send them to Europe as enslaved people to make up for that. The event was called the Slave Raids of 1495. And he definitely was aware, I have to imagine, of a lot of horrible shit going on uh, in this, this 1495 expedition. In an October 28, 1495 letter written by crew member Michel de Cueno, this motherfucker casually wrote about raping a girl that had been given to him by Columbus. He just felt, just felt, uh, you know, comfortable getting out the old quill and inkwell and jotting some heinous shit down. 
clearly not worried about repercussions. This dude wrote, We captured this canoe with all the men. One cannibal was wounded by a lance blow, and thinking him dead, we left him in the sea. Suddenly we saw him begin to swim away. Therefore we caught him, and with a long hook, pulled him aboard where we cut off his head with an axe. All right. We sent the other cannibals together with the two slaves to Spain. When I was in the boat, I took a beautiful cannibal girl, and the admiral gave her to me. The admiral he's referring to is Columbus. Having her in my room, and she being naked, as is their custom, I began to want to amuse myself with her. That's literally what he wrote. I want to amuse myself. That's even fucking creepier than just like, I wanted to fuck her. I wanted to amuse myself with her. Uh, Since I wanted to have my way with her, and she was not willing... She worked me over so badly with her nails that I wish I had never begun. Oh, that's crazy that she didn't want you to rape her. Uh, to get to the end of the story, seeing how things were going, I got a rope and tied her up so tightly that she made unheard of cries, which you wouldn't have believed. At the end, we got along this fucking piece. This another sentence. It's so disturbing. At the end, we got along so well that let me tell you, it seemed she had studied at a school for horse. I wish I could get in a time machine, go back, fucking cut this guy's dick off and let him bleed out. Fucking savages. Spaniards were fucking savages on these voyages. Uh, dude, just doing a little journaling. Yeah, just uh, jotting some thoughts down about tying up a native girl. Who, God knows how young she was. Who fought off his first attempt at raping her. And then, uh, then tied her up so tight, she's screaming bloody murder, making squeals people hadn't even heard. And then rapes her again and again. And then, you know, brags about how sexually submissive was. Once she, you know, fucking let her out from the ropes, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I bet you guys did get along well. She's trying to avoid being fucking tortured with the rope again. They just completely dehumanize these women. Uh, Bartolome de la Casas, a member of the 15 of A, 1502 Spanish expedition led by uh, Nicolas Avando, was someone actually upset, thank God, by the atrocities he saw from Europeans like Columbus and Avando. Avando was the Spanish governor of the West Indies from 1501 to 1509. 40 years later in 1542, de la Casas, this dude lived a long time. Uh, the Spaniard who would live in the West Indies for over half a century, man became a Dominican, pre- Dominican priest in Hispaniola wrote a book called A Brief Account of the Destruction of the Indies, condemning the actions of his fellow Spaniards, condemning the actions of the explorers. In this book, he said, there are two main ways in which those who have traveled to this part of the world pretending to be Christians, uh, I like that he wrote that, have uprooted these pitiful peoples and wiped them from the face of the earth. This is a contemporary writing. It's not some fucking historical presentism going on. This is somebody at the time being like, what the fuck are we doing right now? First, they have waged war on them, unjust, cruel, bloody, and tyrannical war. Second, they have murdered anyone and everyone who has shown them the slightest sign of resistance or even of wishing to escape the torment to which they have subjected him. This latter policy has been instrumental in suppressing native leaders and indeed, given that the Spaniards normally spare only women and children, it has led to the annihilation of all adult males whom they habitually subject to the harshest and most inquisitive Inquitous and brutal slavery that man has ever devised for fellow man, treating them in fact worse than animals. Explorer Amerigo Vespucci wrote journal entries from 1497 to 1504 about his Spanish voyages. In one letter, he wrote about indigenous women's sexuality, claiming that because indigenous women were very libidinous, they would cause a man to lose their virile organs and remain eunuchs. Vespucci also portrayed indigenous women as being violent. He wrote in a letter from his third voyage, excuse me, we saw a native woman. Come from the hill, carrying a great stick in her hand. When she came to where our Christian stood, uh, like Christian is a Christian guy, she raised it and gave him such a blow that he was felled to the ground. 
The other native women immediately took him by the feet, dragged him towards the hill. They all ran away towards the hill where the women were still tearing the Christian to pieces. At a great fire they made, they roasted him before our eyes, showing us many pieces and then eating them. First off, did that happen as it was written? A lot of people think they were full of shit about the cannibalism claims. Did they eat him? Also, if that motherfucker did get murdered and eaten, I bet he deserved it. How many women had he raped prior to that beating? How many men, women, and children did he kill? Uh, early colonizers characterized indigenous women as having a cannibalistic appetite for white men. Some of the writings portray these women as highly sexual. Vespucci wrote in the same letter, Native men marry as many wives as they please, and son cohabits with mother, brother, sister, male cousin with female. Any man with the first woman he meets, the women, as I have said, go about naked and are very libidinous. Yet their bodies are comely, but they are as wild as can be imagined. When Native women had the opportunity of copulating with Christians, urged by excessive lust, they defiled and prostituted themselves. Oh, they defiled themselves, not the dudes. Just these fucking, these seductress, these temptresses, these devil's harlots. Colonizers, you know, had, had no choice. The dicks were hard. What are they supposed to do with them? Fucking beat off on the sand? No, they had to fucking tie them up and rape them. Uh, writings like this portrayed indigenous women as a threat to both the physical safety uh, of uh, Christian men and their morals. Castleman writes that, again, if native women are seen as a threat to men, then violence against them becomes an act of self-defense. If native women are constructed as lascivious, then all sexual activity is invited and ultimately enjoyed. And finally, if native women appear to choose to live in bodies that are not yet subdued by patriarchy, then they are available to be dominated by European men. Holy fucking destructive patriarchy, Batman. If women are seen as a threat to men, violence against them becomes an act of self-defense. What a terrifying rationalization of colonial violence, right? We had to beat the fuck out of this woman. We had to subjugate them. They were acting sexy. I bet they weren't doing much other than, you know, being naked. Who cares if they were, uh, you know, sexually interested? If it was consensual, you fucking twats. And then the colonizers, you know, they get horny. And rather than take responsibility for their horniness and maybe trying to control it through, again, beating off or something, uh, they blame women as being too tempting. Old-timey version of, uh, well, if she didn't want to be raped, she shouldn't have worn that skirt. Right? Lucifina wept. Uh, Bartolome de, de la Casas, the fucking good guy of this time, uh, this priest, good priest, got to point it out, good priest wrote of yet another incident of violence against women in his book. This depiction is particularly awful. Oh my gosh. Uh, he wrote, One Spaniard took a maiden by force to commit the sin of the flesh with her, i.e. to rape her, dragging her away from her mother. So I'm guessing she's very young. Finally having to unsheath his sword to cut off the woman's hands. And when the damsel still resisted, they stabbed her to death. What the fuck? Because she dared to resist his attempt to rape her, they cut off her hands. Then killed her when she wouldn't calmly accept now being raped as she was bleeding to death from having her hands cut off. Why the fuck were they still trying to rape her after they cut off her hands? Again, these Spaniards, fucking savages. This is like horror flick, torture porn level of sexual violence. But you know, these ladies were probably trying to seduce these poor men. These ladies who fought to the death to not be raped uh, and were torn away from their mothers were probably temptresses, right? (laughs) What were these guys supposed to do? Not cut their hands off? Almost three centuries later in 1773, Franciscan friar Junpero Serra uh, wrote about Spanish soldiers assaulting indigenous women in California, writing, when both men and women at the side of Spanish soldiers would take off running, yeah, in terror, the soldiers, adept as they are at lassoing cows and mules, would lasso Indian women, who then became prey for their unbridled lust. Yee, doesn't sound like uh, those women were, uh, you know, doing their best to sexually tempt anyone. They were running in terror from the morally superior Catholic soldiers who lassoed and raped them. God's will be done. Uh, Also butchered the men, right? I'm sure butchered a lot of women for trying to fight off the rapists. The Spaniards' behavior uh, maybe didn't change so much over almost three centuries of colonization here. 
These examples show that women attempted to fight back, run away, hide from their attackers. Attackers. These examples, just a few snapshots of the many thousands of women who were raped and killed. I could list off uh, many other similar historical records. And it wasn't just the Spaniards. It was all the colonizers. The shit they did not teach us in history classes, right? All these fucking bullshit paintings of natives and Europeans. Ha ha, yeah, smile here, have some corn. You know, get along together. Yay! Ah, I'm so, so glad you're here. <laughs> Life is better now. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, I'm sure that also happened, but it definitely wasn't all that happened. And it's fucked how brainwashed we've been in school, right? My European ancestors didn't come over primarily to befriend or peacefully get along with anyone. They came here to take, to rape, plunder, butcher, right? All sanctified by the Pope or other religious leaders, of course. I accept this truth because it is the truth. Doesn't make me less good of a person for admitting that it's true. Doesn't mean I'll stand for anyone trying to guilt me personally for shit that happened before I was born, long before. But to deny it, why? Why do so many of us want to hide from cultural and national sins? It's fucking childish and pathetic. I'm thankful to be able to live here today despite how my people got here. Proud of the many accomplishments my ancestors have accomplished as well, right? With technology, medical marvels, industrialization, allowing so many of us to live so much better lives and not scrape an existence off the land and starve at alarming rates. But also, goddamn, a lot of evil carried out by supposed uh, European Christians feeling justified in saving the souls of the savages they took everything from. The souls of the ones they raped and butchered. Through the process of colonization, the Europeans seem to come to view the land itself as having a gender. Early colonizers described the land as being virgin, bountiful, unbridled, untamed, free for the taking. Colonizers raping the earth itself, taking what they wanted. Uh, these same ideas were, of course, applied to indigenous women. Not only the land, but the people needed to be conquered by Europeans. In the book Conquest of Paradise, Christopher Columbus and the Columbian Legacy, prolific and heralded American author and historian Kirkpatrick Sale, or Sally, or fucking uh, Kirkpatrick. I don't, Kirk, maybe his last name is Kirkpatrick too. Maybe it's uh, spelled sale and pronounced Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick? Kirkpatrick. No. Uh, writes, the women of America were as much of a part of the bounty due to conquering Europeans as the other resources in which it luxuriated. Attitudes towards sex women were every bit as exploitative and instrumental as those towards nature. Mother Earth and Earth Mother were all one, all to be used. Another part of the violent campaign against women was attempting to establish a patriarchal hierarchy within indigenous communities in order to control indigenous women. One way for Europeans to accomplish that was sexual violence and enslavement. All right, another well-documented uh, MMIW case, considered one of the first truly well-documented in the land that became the U.S., is the 1613 kidnapping of Pocahontas. Turns out, and you might want to sit down for this, Pocahontas, I hate to be the one to tell you this, was not actually a Disney princess. I know. Fucking Roy Disney! The lies that wicked, evil, mother-killing, dark wizard put into our minds. When he Disney lawyers listening, I am joking. That's a callback to an old joke about Roy Disney. I appreciate you soulless Disney fucks not suing me. Thank you very much. Uh, for the original 1995 animated Disney film, since the real Pocahontas was 11 or 12, maybe even as young as 9 or 10, when uh, she met John Smith, she was depicted as being around 18 or 19. So it wasn't so fucking creepy because uh, Disney execs considered the real history to be sleazy. Even though uh, Pocahontas didn't ever actually had a romantic relationship in real life with uh, John Smith. Uh, Pocahontas did not have a Disney love story of any kind. She did not share a romantic kiss with John Smith and longingly watch his ship depart, uh, back across the Atlantic after telling him he was welcome to return at any time. Real Pocahontas was, uh, raped by colonial enslavers and, uh, basically trafficked. She was kidnapped. She never had a sexual relationship of any kind with John. As I said, she was around 10 when she met him. Uh, he was 28. She does seem to have respected him as type of father figure, did have a sexual relationship with the colonizer. Doesn't seem to have been romantic now that we've, uh, looked at it with a little more accuracy, and not try to whitewash everything. The real Pocahontas, daughter of uh, uh, 
Powhatan, the leader of the Alliance of Algonquian-speaking tribes in that area, she lived uh, in what is now Tidewater, Virginia. Pocahontas, uh, most likely around 18 years old, when she was later kidnapped by the English, forced to live in one of their settlements, so enslaved. Captain Samuel Argall orchestrated the plot to kidnap Pocahontas. Argall was an English sailor employed by the Virginia Company in 1609 to discover a shorter route to Virginia and fish for sturgeon. 1610, he became Admiral of Virginia, ordered to expel the French from all English territory. Argall found out that Pocahontas was living with uh, Potawatomi people at the time. She may have been visiting her husband, Cocoam uh, or Cocoam's people, or doing some political work for her father. She was married to Cocoam. Several sources report that a child together. I imagine she probably loved that child, wanted to stay with that child. Argall uh, knew that things were tense between the English and Potawatomi. He figured that if he captured Pocahontas, he would have leverage against him to help subdue his people. Argall met with the uh, with uh, Japasa, uh, chief of the town of whew, Pasa, Pasa Patanzi, and brother to the chief of the Patamawak. Um, he spoke to Japasa through an English boy translator. This Japasa guy has numerous names in different sources. Uh, through an English translator, if he did not betray Pocahontas under my hands, we would no longer be brothers nor friends. Japasa refused, told Argall that Patawan would start a war. Argall then threatened war as well, promised protection from Patawan. Japasa said he had to consult with his older brother. After hours of deliberation, they decided to go through the kidnapping. Pocahontas, Pocahontas excuse me, went with Japasa and his wife to see Captain Argall's ship. Japasa's wife pretended she wanted to go on board because she knew uh, he would only let her if Pocahontas went with her. Pocahontas could most likely tell something was wrong, tried to refuse, but then agreed to go when Japasa's wife started crying. They ate a meal on board. Pocahontas went to the gunner's room to sleep. Then in the morning, Argall refused to let her leave the ship. So she's kidnapped. He declared she's being held as ransom for, for the return of stolen weapons and English prisoners. Japasa and his wife now leave. Argall pays them with the copper kettle and other items. Argall now takes Pocahontas to Jamestown to Governor Sir Thomas Gates. Poca uh, Potawan agrees to give up ransom, the ransom if they will bring his beloved daughter back to his territory. Marshal Thomas Dale, Gates' second cousin in command, decides to send her, though, to Henrico, a Jamestown settlement. There were no women in Jamestown. They were all in Henrico. Pocahontas could spend uh, her time with women, become more socialized. While being held captive, Pocahontas now spent most of her time with Reverend Alexander Whitaker. They started studying the Bible. I'm sure she was strongly coerced to do so. Pocahontas then goes to Fort Patience, one of five small forts with Reverend Whitaker. Whitaker wanted nothing more than, than to convert an indigenous person to Christianity. It's the reason he came to Virginia. He believed they lived in darkness. Their nakedness symbolized spiritual poverty, sin. He believed God saved the colony of Jamestown many times because he wanted them to convert native people. Whitaker also realized that Pocahontas was intelligent. He was one of the few who believed indigenous people were as intelligent as the English and wrote, let us not think that these men are so simple as some have supposed them, for they are of body, lusty, strong, and very nimble. They are a very understanding generation, quick of apprehension, sedane in their dispatches, uh, subtile in their dealings, exquisite in their inventions, and industrious in their labor. And again, if someone was talking to me like that, they'd be like, shut, what the fuck are you saying? Come on, ah! Uh, Pocahontas spent all week studying with the reverend. Then she had to present or perform what she knew by reciting conversing with English settlers. She attended church every Sunday, spent the day in town while Reverend Whitaker taught class. And that's most likely how she met John Rolfe. Uh, John Rolfe would become famous for introducing, introducing tobacco to Virginians. And Pocahontas and John Rolfe were married in 1614. Then she gave birth to a son named Thomas. Right, the stories usually say that, you know, they fucking had a happy marriage, uh, but she did not likely want to marry him. Remember, she was a captive and already had a husband and a kid that she missed dearly. Pocahontas most likely cooperated with her kidnappers and went along with the marriage because that was the custom for her people at the time. Pocahontas uh, allegedly had a nervous breakdown during her captivity, and when the English sent for her sister to help her, Pocahontas told her sister she'd been raped by John and was possibly pregnant. 
Again, not what we were taught in school. Real Pocahontas, kidnapped, trafficked, likely raped. Uh, writings of these early explorers, the precedents they set on how to deal with indigenous women, how they saw them as property to be, to be possessed. Right? This treatment, of course, influenced the colonizers of the 18th and 19th centuries who settled in the U.S. and Canada. White women didn't have a whole lot of rights at that time. Native women could uh, be used however men wanted to use them. They had fucking no rights. Early Americans in the 18th and 19th centuries, early Canadians, they already had ideas, images, stereotypes about indigenous people, especially women in their minds. In the June 2020 issue of Restoration Magazine by the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, uh, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center policy team members wrote a statement that argues that colonization policies laid the groundwork for later laws that will contribute to the modern MMIW crisis. From the beginning of European contact, Indian nations as sovereigns engaged with foreign countries as governments. As sovereigns, Indian nations held full authority over the lands and peoples within their respective territories. The diminishment of this authority to a position of dependent nations within the United States occurred as a result of U.S. colonization. While violence against Native women is committed by individuals, abusers, rapists, traffickers, it is federal colonial policies and laws that created the social setting for such crimes. Makes total sense if you live within a cultural atmosphere where the rape and exploitation of certain women is permissible because they're not seen as actual equal human beings. And of course, sadly, there's a lot of fucking dirtbags in the world and always will be. And a lot of rape and exploitation is going to happen. The Nationalist Indigenous uh, Women's Resource Center policy team believes that reforms needed to address the MMIW crisis will require U.S. citizens and the government to go back and assess colonial era laws, to not ignore history, and get fucking butt hurt when people want to educate their children with the truth instead of banning factual books and narratives. Can't heal a wound without admitting it is a wound. Can't make amends and heal if the offending party won't own up to their offenses. Uh, let's explore now what the policy team means when they reference diminishment of this sovereign authority to a position of dependent nations. When the U.S. was formed, the colonists viewed indigenous tribes as full sovereigns, independent nations. In, the 17, in 1787, the U.S. Constitution control over Indian affairs was under the federal government and tribes had full authority to govern themselves within their territories. Excuse me. This all changed, of course, as we examined pretty thoroughly in episode 246 when we sucked the trail of tears and also it was touched on in a few other sucks once U.S. citizens wanted to expand their territory. From the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center again, the shift from international diplomacy to federal colonialism undermined the right of Indian nations to self-government and the authority to protect Native women. Current federal Indian law is often referred to as a maze of injustice. It lacks logic and a moral standard because it was created based on the drive of the U.S. to lay stake to tribal lands and resources. Let's examine how this federal colonialism enacted specific laws over the past 200 plus years that led directly to today's missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis. In 1817, Congress passes the Federal Enclaves Act. The Federal Enclaves Act established federal jurisdictions over non-indigenous people who commit crimes on tribal land and over indigenous people for offenses against non-indigenous people. Uh, the act declared the general laws of the United States as to the punishment of offenses committed in any place within the sole and exclusive jurisdiction of the United States extend to the Indian country. Tribal land now became a federal enclave or federal property like a building, a park, a military base, etc. Uh, the act doesn't apply to crimes committed by indigenous people against other indigenous people, though. Offenses punished by a tribe or crimes in which a treaty gave a tribe exclusive jurisdiction. So from the very beginning, there was confusion over how the tribe should govern themselves. Kind of allowed, but not really to govern themselves. Uh, in general, a treaty would be signed and the tribe would be told, oh, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, you guys. You get this land. It's your nation. <laughs> yeah. Run shit how you see fit. Oh, hell, hell yeah. 
And then some missionaries or maybe some miners, fur trappers, whatever, would enter the native's land with permission or illegally, and they would see things they didn't care for. And they would run and tattle to the U.S. government. And then the government would approach the tribe again. <laughs> uh, hey, guys. Uh, hey, remember? Do you remember when we were like, oh, fuck yeah, run shit how you see fit and stuff? Um, well, when we said that, we assumed that you would run shit like we run shit. <laughs> and uh, since you don't, you know, uh, we're going to have to remind you that, that you do need to run things the way we want you to because you're not really in, in control. <laughs> And then when the tribes refused, they would come back with, hey, guys, um, remember, remember when we said that this land was your nation? Yeah, uh, that wasn't like 100% true. It's like kind of your land, but mostly ours. And we have final say. Hey, pretend that, you know, okay, pretend that you're a college kid and we're your parents and you're living in an apartment off campus. No curfew. Yay. Live your own life. Party. But then you flunk some classes. And now we got to fucking tug on the leash. Now we got to remind you. Not really free. <laughs> nah, we can still fuck your life up if, we, if you're not living it like we want you to. And if the college analogy doesn't make you know sense because uh, you know that analogy comes in the future, how about this? Fucking do what we fucking tell you or we're going to kill you motherfuckers. Now go back to playing house, dipshits, in the fucking backyard that we own. It was that kind of vibe. Uh, the reduction of rights continued in 1823. That year, the U.S. Supreme Court made their decision in Johnson versus Meantosh. It's a weird name. It's like Macintosh, but without the C. So somebody had a fucking dumb name back in 1823 and forgot to put a fucking C in there. So Johnson versus fucking dipshit, uh, where they determined that private citizens could not purchase land from indigenous people. Chief Justice John Marshall stated that native nations did not have legal authority over their land because they hadn't privatized it. It's a weird rationalization. Hey, did you guys uh, divide up your land like we asked you to? No? Well, then it's not your land anymore. Uh, this is part of the view that native people lived on, on land owned by the federal government had no ownership over their ancestral land. 1825, Congress passed the Assimilated Crimes Act now, which states with whoever within or upon any federal enclave is guilty of any act or omission, which, although not made punishable by any enactment of Congress, would be punishable if committed or omitted within the jurisdiction of the state, territory, possession, or district in which such place is situated. By the laws thereof in force at the time of such act or omission shall be guilty of a like offense and subject to a like punishment. Legal language, no offense to any of the lawyers listening. I know we have a lot of lawyers. I know a lot of you are great people, but it makes me want to punch you fuckers in your faces. It just seems like it's intentionally confusing. Um, this act was created to address some legal loopholes. People who committed crimes in the federal enclaves were not being punished because there were no laws prohibiting that particular crime and states had no jurisdiction. This act now made state laws applicable to federal enclaves, but the act didn't address what happened to, to a non-indigenous defendant or victim on tribal land. In 1881, the Supreme Court made their decision in the U.S. versus uh, McBratney, someone who remembered the C after the M. Good job, McBratney. Where a non-indigenous person was murdered by another non-indigenous person on the Ute Reservation in Colorado. The defendant was found guilty in a federal court, but appealed because he claimed there was no federal jurisdiction in the case. And the Supreme Court agreed with the defendant. Supreme Court agreed with the murderer. Yep, you're getting away with it. <laughs> we do think you killed that motherfucker, but you killed him in no man's land. So good job. And he was injured. Not, a, not an actual man. So who cares? Who cares? Good job killing. Uh, the court ruled that when a non-indigenous person commits a crime against another non-indigenous person on a reservation. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Nope. I fucked up in my little uh, silly bit there. No, he was, uh, let me, let me, whoop, let me reverse. Uh, you killed him in no man's land and uh, he was fucking white piece of shit, but that's okay. Cause no man's land. Good killing. There, that fixes it. Uh, the court ruled that when a non-indigenous person commits a crime against another non-indigenous person on a reservation. 
the state has jurisdiction unless the act admitting the state into the union gave jurisdiction to another party. It's more confusing. Refocusing specifically on Native women now. January 26, 1867, the federal government issues the Doolittle Report, part of which uh, detailed sexual violence against indigenous women. So that they're already thinking about it enough at this time, which is surprising, actually, that they do a report on it. It was the first government report to do so. Two years earlier, uh, March 3rd, 1865, Congress had established a joint special committee on conditions of Indian tribes. The Doolittle Commission was ordered to investigate the present condition of the Indian tribes, especially into the matter in which they are treated by the civil and military authorities of the United States and examined fully the conduct of Indian agents and superintendents. This was after decades of complaints. The commission found fraud and corruption within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The commission also reported a lot of violence against indigenous women. For example, after the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre occurring in present-day Colorado, Lieutenant James Connor spoke about hearing reports U.S. soldiers cutting out women's genitals, stretching them over their fucking saddle bows, and wearing them on their hats. Soldiers going full serial killer. The government reported that uh, after the Camp Grant Massacre of 1871 occurring in present-day Arizona, women were found lying in such a position, and from the appearance of their genital organs and of their wounds, there can be no doubt that they were first ravished, which is what they used to call rape, and then shot dead. Yeah. Next important influential bit of U.S. legal news came concerning the uh, tribes when the Supreme Court made their decision in Ex Parte Crow Dog, this case, in 1883. August 5th, 1881, Crow Dog, a Lakota man, killed another Lakota man named Spotted Tail on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. A tribal court ruled that Crow Dog was now required to take care of Spotted Tail's family and could no longer participate in community activities in accordance with tribal law. The U.S. government didn't like that sentence. Now they arrested Crow Dog, charged him with the same murder again. The Dakota Territorial Court then tried and sentenced Crow Dog to death. Then he appealed, arguing that the federal government had no right to try him for any crimes that occurred on tribal lands against tribal members. U.S. Supreme Court now heard the case ex parte Crow Dog that agreed with Crow Dog. The court ruled unanimously that the, that the Dakota Territorial Court had no jurisdiction over the reservation because it was native on native crime on native land. Jurisdiction was returned to the Lakota Nation under Lakota law. The original sentence was reinstated. It had to take care of the Spotted Tails family. No longer participate in community services. Right, The case angered a lot of the uh, Dakota white people who thought that capital punishment was the only proper justice for victims. Only way to maintain order. So, partially because of that outcry, the Major Crimes Act of 1885, the final of numerous Indian Appropriations Acts uh, carried out in 1885, a series of laws passed mainly to allow white settlers to take more native land, uh, gave federal jurisdiction in all native territories over seven major crimes committed by indigenous people against indigenous people on tribal land. The list of crimes was originally murder, manslaughter, rape, assault with intent to kill, arson, Hula hooping in a non-hula hooping sanctioned zone and larceny or burglary instead of the hula hooping bullshit. Now, if a native person is suspected of raping or killing, et cetera, another native person, right? Feds get involved. But if the crime involved non-Indians, the state held that uh, tribal land inside of it, uh, whichever state that was, they had jurisdiction. But if the crime was not one of these major crimes, neither the state nor the feds had jurisdiction. The tribes did, but they didn't always have law enforcement agencies. You see how fucking confusing this is just getting more and more confusing. And it's gotten more in the years since. David Soutner, former Supreme Court justice from 1990 to 2008, said once that tribal jurisdiction is peculiarly, peculiarly susceptible to confusion. And current Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas uh, said that federal Indian policy is schizophrenic. Fun. 
Now the Major Crimes Act list includes kidnapping, incest, assault with a dangerous weapon, assault resulting in serious bodily injury, assault with intent to commit rape, robbery, and felonious sexual molestation of a minor. It's been expanded. Our original act was just two short paragraphs long, but the Major Crimes Act, a substantial encroachment on Native sovereignty that continues to impact Native communities today. Right? They're just uh, not allowed to handle their own serious cases. The act was written based on the idea that Indigenous people, yeah, not competent enough to deal with their own legal affairs. Uh, affairs. Now tribes not allowed to punish anyone who commits, you know, major crimes in their lands. Uh, the feds have to do it, but the feds do not have to be properly funded to be able to do it and often aren't. And that's been a big fucking problem. Source after source mentions how there is just not nearly enough agents working with the tribes. Per the FBI's own website, the FBI investigates the most serious crimes in Indian country, such as murder, child sexual and physical abuse, violent assaults, drug trafficking, public corruption, financial crimes and Indian gaming violations. More than 150 agents work Indian country matters full-time. So when they say more than 150, I'm guessing it's like 151. It's less than 160. Uh, in the whole country, signed to investigate these crimes. There are also about 500, or excuse me, there are also uh, 574 federally recognized American Indian tribes in the U.S. The FBI has federal law enforcement responsibility on nearly 200 separate reservations. The federal jurisdiction is shared concurrently with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which adds confusion. Should it be the BIA? Should it be the FBI? The BIA? It's a 2004. Most recent year I can find info uh, about this for 320 officers. So 150, 150 roughly FBI agents, 320 BIA officers for nearly 200 Indian reservations, some of which are massive. The Crow Indian Reservation, headquartered in Crow Agency, the largest reservation in Montana, encompasses uh, approximately 2.2 million acres over half the size of Connecticut, the Crow tribe has a membership of 11,000, uh, of which 7,900 reside on this reservation. And that particularly big-ass area, according to Terrell Bracken, former first Crow chief of police, has a total of five BIA officers. Five officers to handle major violent crimes and missing person cases. Plus, it doesn't say how many, few FBI officers in Billings, two-hour-plus drive for much of the reservation. But the FBI officers in that small field office in Billings also, uh, you know, uh, responsible for investigating fraud, corruption, cyber scams, child pornography, terrorism, criminal networks, lots of white collar crime. Due to a perceived massive lack of local uh, enforcement, the Crow tribe living on one of seven reservations in Montana assembled its own law enforcement agency that Terrell Bracken used to be chief of. It folded after five months. Before folding, Terrell said they had no self-service in much of the area they covered, no radio service for their vehicles, no way to communicate with anyone when they were patrolling a huge rural territory and talked about how I-90 cuts through part of the reservation, uh, a part where there's, you know, really almost no law enforcement, a perfect place for women to go missing or be murdered. Bracken said the agency was formed in large part because the BIA and the FBI were not handling cases of missing and murdered women, right? Terrell and others interviewed in that vice doc I watched said the tribe had to fund their own agency because not enough agents to handle a huge area and the agents working the area generally responded to missing people reports with apathy. Ah, uh, they're probably out partying. partying. Uh, maybe they ran away. Uh, let us know if you still haven't uh, heard anything in a few days. Even though, as I went over earlier, the first 40 to 72 hours, critical to solving cases. Bracken's agency, again, did not last long. No official reason given. Probably went down because of lack of funding. That reservation, one of the poorest parts of the U.S., the poorest county in the entire U.S., South Dakota's uh, Oglala, Lakota County, not far from the Crow Reservation, contained entirely within the boundaries of the Pine Ridge Reservation, lowest per capita income in the U.S., $8,768 a year. Yee! Because of rampant poverty across many reservations, and also because of the confusing maze of tribal, state, county, and federal laws, tribal officers can't really punish anyone they catch anyway unless the feds decide to prosecute. 
because of all this break, Brack and others have spoken out about the jurisdictional nightmare of these cases that I've been, you know, talking about. Uh, depending on where the crime occurs or where a person is reported missing, the crime could fall to either state, federal, county, or tribal authorities, the county sheriff's department, the federal bureau of Indian affairs, the FBI, the tribal police to investigate. Too many agencies jockeying for authority. Sometimes they're supposed to work together on certain cases. If there are both tribal and non-native suspects and or victims, right? The jurisdiction falls to numerous agencies, none of whom who have been given clear mandates as to who the fuck is in charge of the investigation. Agencies might not even, uh, um, uh, might end up in charge even though they don't have the resources, excuse me, to properly investigate. Oftentimes, tribal MMIW cases end up in a gray area between all the agencies and slip through the cracks. Again, according to formal tribal police chief Bracken, an Indian reservation for all intents and purposes is a sovereign nation. It is subject to completely different laws governing bodies. They're like a country within a country. So a Bighorn County deputy can show up at a tribal member's doorstep on the reservation and that tribal member can say, you have no right to be here. You have no jurisdiction here. And they have to leave. It can be very difficult to solve fucking anything. Tribal police, again, can't arrest non-native perpetrators of violent crimes. The maximum sentence that tribal law enforcement can impose on anyone for any crime in the Navajo Nation Reservation that occupies portions of northeastern Arizona, northwestern uh, New Mexico, southeastern Utah, an area bigger than New Hampshire and Vermont combined, home to roughly 175,000 uh, Navajo, is a year incarceration and a $5,000 fine, even for murder. If the feds don't want to prosecute and the tribal police do, that's the most they can punish someone for any fucking crime. That crazy-ass law applies to all tribal lands. And it's been changed recently, I'll explain later, but not by much. Uh, the tribes can't punish non-natives for fucking anything. State governments uh, can't punish non-tribal members for crimes committed on tribal lands uh, uh, until June of this year. How crazy that state governments could not punish non-tribal members for crimes committed on tribal lands until June of 2022. The Supreme Court ruled on June 29th the states can finally prosecute non-native people who commit crimes against native people on tribal lands. What is happening? Okay, back to our timeline now. In 1887, the Dawes General Allotment Act is passed. Reservation land divided into individual parcels of land by the federal government in an effort to assimilate indigenous people into a new way of life. The parcels distributed to individuals uh, rather than communal land. Men are usually given 160 acres for the families. Uh, Roosevelt later called the Dawes Act a mighty pulverizing engine to break up the tribal mass. Ah, Teddy. Did a lot of good things later as president, but uh, treating uh, tribes fairly, not one of the things he did at all. Not a fan of the natives. Uh, this act was a way to attempt to get indigenous people to imitate a traditional European Christian way of life, to destroy cultural focus on community. And the act did a good job of that. Today, the majority of indigenous people do not long, uh, no longer live on tribal lands, and there is uh, much less community than there used to be. Jumping way up to the mid-20th century now. Many indigenous people moved away from tribal lands during World War II or shortly thereafter. Uh, for, uh, you know, either the military or job opportunities. The Indian Relocation Act of 1956 stated in part, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled that in order to help adult Indians who reside on or near Indian reservations to obtain reasonable and satisfactory employment, the Secretary of the Interior is authorized to undertake a program of vocational training that provides for vocational counseling or guidance, institutional training in any recognized vocation or trade, apprenticeship, and on-the-job training Board periods do not exceed 24 months. Transportation to the place of training and subsistence during the course of training. So this opportunity led to, hundred, led to hundreds of thousands of natives leaving their tribal lands. Uh, the government also pursued policies of termination, right, in the uh, decades uh, following World War II that led to a large number of Native Americans moving out of tribal lands between 1953 and 1968. 
Termination refers to the federal policy involving termination of the federal government's trust relationship with Indian tribes and, as a consequence, the elimination of federal benefits and support services to the terminated tribes. The living conditions on the reservations were found to be so horrific by the U.S. government in the 1950s, with so many residents living in severe poverty, that the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the federal federal bureaucracy were found to be at fault for. uh, And rather than build up the infrastructure on these tribal lands, the 1950s tribes were annihilated with legislation like... Uh, House Concurrent Resolution 108 that called for the immediate termination of the Flathead, Klamath, uh, Menominee, uh, Potawatomi, and Turtle Mountain, Chippewa, as well as all tribes of the states of California, New York, Florida, and Texas. Termination of these tribes meant that the uh, immediate withdrawal of all federal aid, services and protection, as well as the end of reservations. So basically, like, it's not going well. There's fucking too much poverty here now, so we're just going to, like, give up on this. We're just going to, like, nope, you just got to, like, live like everybody else. Individual members of terminated tribes were then to become full U.S. citizens and have the benefits and obligations of other U.S. citizens. Uh, there are still some reservations in three states, thanks to newer, or in these states, excuse me, thanks to newer legislation. But again, it's, it's complicated. This fucking whole subject is fucked and complicated. Uh, these termination relocation policies ended in the 1970s, but Native Americans have continued moving to urban areas ever since, especially since these policies left, you know, most existing reservations in shambles. They were just gutted. According to the two, and they were already not doing well. According to the 2010 census, about 71% of people who identify as AI now live in urban areas. Castleman writes, through policies of outright physical annihilation of native peoples, um, or excuse me, though policies of outright physical annihilation were abandoned by the middle of the 20th century, the U.S. federal government was still deeply entrenched in addressing what it continued to see as, quote, the Indian problem. In exchange for more land, Castleman wrote that the government entered a trust relationship with indigenous people now. The government became a trustee of resources and guaranteed to provide services and protect land and native sovereignty. I was supposed to be doing that before. And the U.S. government has done a terrible job of providing these services. Public Law 280, mentioned before the timeline, passed in 1953. PL 280 transferred jurisdiction to state governments in certain cases. Public Law 280 was part of the termination era. Uh, PL 280 transferred again, as I said earlier, jurisdiction to states of California, Minnesota, uh, excluding, you know, uh, the... Red Lake Nation, Nebraska, um, Oregon, excluding Warm Springs Reservation, Wisconsin, and Alaska once it became a state. These six states were home to 359 of the 550 federally recognized tribes, meaning PL 280 affected 65% of tribes. The FBI writes the federal law granted so-called mandatory states all criminal and civil jurisdiction over Indian land within their borders. This law effectively terminated all tribal criminal jurisdictions in the affected tribal areas within these states. Since states were later allowed to opt in, PL-280 has since applied to Nevada, South Dakota, Washington, Florida, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, Arizona, Iowa, Utah. It has been a common misinterpretation that the Major Crimes Act took away all tribal authority to prosecute offenders. Public Law 280 also has been grossly misinterpreted in many places. Attorney General, uh, Attorney General Janet Reno clarified that tribal courts still had some jurisdiction over certain crimes under both statutes, but because of it. Consistent misinterpretation, tribal courts have not prosecuted certain cases on their lands for decades. And again, such a fucking mess. In 1968, Congress passed the Indian Civil Rights Act. The ICRA limited tribal jurisdiction over indigenous people further to misdemeanors. The ICRA ensured that tribal governments could not pass laws that violated a U.S. citizen's constitutional rights. One of those rights that was protected was the right to a jury of at at least six people. Several others were included in the list. The ICRA limited tribal courts to sentencing offenders to that one year in prison or $5,000 fine. That's where this comes from. And again, that's for any crime, murder, rape, whatever. If the feds want to investigate a major crime on tribal land for whatever reason, and the tribe happens to have a tribal law enforcement agency, which many didn't, 
And then now they arrested somebody for raping and murdering some native woman and the tribal jury convicted them. Most punishment they could dish out a year in jail and a $5,000 fine. Even worse, if a non-native uh, you know, were to murder and rape a native woman on tribal land and the feds didn't act, the tribal police had no power to do fucking anything to punish the offender. Can't believe this is real. Uh, the Violence Against Women Act federal legislation is signed into law on September 13th, 1994 by former President Bill Clinton. And it fixed everything. And we have no more problems. No, it didn't do shit. The VAWA expanded the judicial tools and theory to combat violence against women and protection and provide protection for women who had suffered violent abuses. The original VAWA was enacted as Title IV of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. The passage of the VAWA allowed the creation of the Office of on Violence Against on Violence Against Women, excuse me, within the Department of Justice. All these long ass fucking titles. The OVW was tasked with implementing the new VAWA legislation and administering grant programs to state and local governments. These grants were meant to work on preventing and addressing domestic violence and child abuse. The Department of Justice worked with the Department of Health and Human Services. HHS grants uh, gave funds for shelters, rape prevention and education, programs for sexual abuse, runaway and homeless youth, as well as community programs on domestic violence. The, uh, I'm going to say VAWA. VAWA also mandated government funding for studies on violence against women. VAWA reauthorized in 2000, 2005, 2013, 2022 this year, the original VAWA allowed victims of gender-motivated crimes classified as hate crimes to sue in federal court, but in 2000, the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Okay. Uh, it was the first comprehensive U.S. legislation meant to end violence against women, and that sounds good, right? Also established federal protection for women, people who have been fighting for this for years because they believe states were not doing enough to address violence against women, and VAWA included the first federal law against battering, and that's good, right? Hail Safina. Took four long years to get the act passed because of opposition to the private civil rights remedy provision that allowed victims of gender-based violence to sue the perpetrator. But uh, in spite of all the uh, the good this act did, did it change the jurisdictional mess so it could actually help Native women living on reservations? No, it, it didn't. It helped women in general, basically minus Native women, especially women living on reservations, uh, just as fucked up as it was before this was passed. 2008, 2009, Congress worked on creating an apology to Native peoples. And that's what's going to stop missing and murdered Indigenous women. An apology. <laughs> Guys, we're sorry. Oh, hey, everyone just stopped killing everybody. Great. I didn't know it was that easy. Uh, April 30th, 2009, Senator Sam Brownback, former governor of Kansas, introduced a joint resolution to acknowledge and apologize for the mistreatment of Native Americans. Titled Joint Resolution to Acknowledge a Long History of Official depredations and ill-conceived policies by the federal government regarding Indian tribes and offer an apology to all Native peoples on behalf of the U.S. On December 19, 2009, uh, 2009, President Barack Obama signed the Native American Apology Resolution as part of the 2010 Department of Defense Appropriations Act. In this act, Congress recognizes that there have been years of official depredations, ill-conceived policies, and the breaking of covenants by the federal government regarding Indian tribes. The government apologizes on behalf of the people of the U.S. to all Native peoples for the many instances of violence, maltreatment, and neglect inflicted on Native peoples by citizens of the U.S. And thanks to that apology, you know, it, uh, it did fix everything finally. The tribes are stronger than ever. There's more buffalo. Tribes have been allowed to return to ancestral lands, govern as they see fit. They're allowed to defend their women. Women allowed to defend themselves from non-tribal sexually violent aggressors like never before or nothing at all has changed. Congress encouraged the president to acknowledge the wrongs that the U.S. Uh, had committed against indigenous people. Unfortunately, no president has actually ever presented this apology. There's currently a movement to uh, call on President Biden. To do that, to do this, to present this apology to indigenous people. Will he do it? I fucking doubt it. Sadly, there is just uh, not enough political advantage in doing so. Not enough tribe members around anymore to have any real political weight to throw around. How sad. 
not enough voting power to move major politicians into any action. Uh, July 29, 2010, Barack Obama signed a Tribal Law and Order Act into law. And this did a tiny bit of good, but not a lot. The TLOA encouraged coordination between tribes, state governments, and federal government. TLOA increased tribal authority over cases involving indigenous offenders. Oh, man. It allowed tribal courts to sentence offenders to three years and $15,000 fines. And if there's multiple offenses, you can get all the way up to nine years. So now if tribal police arrested a native guy who uh, who raped some native woman like, like 10 times on tribal land and, then, and molested her kids a couple dozen times and then fucking killed her, he could go to jail for up to nine years. He get nine fucking years. That's progress. Uh, can tribal police effectively defend women from non-tribal sexually violent aggressors? No. As mentioned previously uh, multiple times now, jurisdictional confusion hinders investigations to this day, waste resources. Even with that new law, tribes may still not have equal access to law enforcement or be willing to utilize non-tribal systems. Even the TLOA acknowledged uh, that, saying because tribal nations and local groups are not participants in the decision-making, the resulting federal and state decisions, laws, rules, and regulations, excuse me, about criminal justice often are considered as lacking legitimacy. As widely reported in testimony to the commission, non-tribally administrated Criminal justice programs are less likely to garner tribal citizen confidence and trust, resulting in diminished crime-fighting capacities. That's another whole fucking part of this mess. Is even when uh, good is trying to be done by the U.S. government, it is usually met with resistance by the tribes because it's not part of their decision-making process, even though they don't have the infrastructure to properly handle their jurisdictions anymore. It's a whole fucking thing. The consequences are many. Victims are dissuaded from reporting. Witnesses are reluctant to come forward to testify. In short, victims and witnesses frequently do not trust or agree with state or federal justice procedures. And potential violators are undeterred. In 2013, the Violence Against Women Act was reauthorized. Fucking who cares? Uh, nothing really changes. <laughs> uh, if a tribal court wants to prosecute a non-indigenous offender now, the offender must be proven to have sufficient ties to the tribal community, such as living in the territory, being employed by the tribe, being a spouse or partner of a tribe member or a non-tribe member, but a member of a different tribe who lives in that tribe's territory. And even if all that shit is proven... Tribes still cannot prosecute crimes that co-occur with domestic violence, like drug and alcohol offenses or crimes against children. What the fuck is happening? With this new addition, some non-tribal motherfucker could hit a tribal woman and molest her kids, be charged with domestic violence by the tribe if proven to have connections to the tribe, but not be charged with child molestation by the tribe. The feds would have to take that up. And source after source says they just drop the ball and shit like this continually. Oh boy. October 5th, 2017, Savannah's Act, aka the hashtag MMIW Act, is introduced in the Senate by Heidi uh, Heitkamp of North Dakota, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. It was signed into law by former President Donald Trump. Uh, the bill requires Department of Justice to provide training to law enforcement agencies on how to re- record tribal enrollment for victims in federal databases. Development and implement uh, a strategy to educate the public on the National Missing and Unidentified Person System. Uh, conduct specific outreach to tribes, tribal organizations, and urban Indian organizations regarding the ability to publicly enter information through the National Missing and Unidentified Person System or other non-law enforcement incentive portal. Yeah. Develop regionally appropriate guidelines for responses to cases of missing or murdered Native Americans. Provide training and technical assistance to tribes and law enforcement agencies for implementation of the developed guidelines. And finally, report stats on missing or murdered Native Americans. Has any of that happened? Who the fuck knows? Does this act clean up the confusing and confounding jurisdictional nightmare that encourages perpetrators to continue to target Native women? No, it does not. The case behind Savannah's act being introduced, extremely horrific act of violence against an indigenous woman 
Savannah LaFontaine Greywind was killed in 2017. She was a 22-year-old woman from Fargo, Fargo, North Dakota, pregnant at the time of her murder, eight months pregnant. She was a member of the Spirit Lake Sioux Tribe. Her family connected with the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. Savannah lived in an apartment complex in Fargo and on August 19, 2017 at 1.24 p.m., she went upstairs to an apartment to model a dress. Her neighbor, Brooke Cruz, offered her 20 bucks to do so. Uh, Brooke would later testify that she instigated a fight then with Savannah by accusing her of harassing her cat. Weird way to start a fight. Then during that fight, Savannah fell, hit her head on the bathroom sink. Cruz then cut Savannah's stomach open with the fucking box cutter, removed her baby from the uterus while Savannah was in and out of consciousness. Jesus, William Hone, her boyfriend, then comes home, finishes Savannah off by strangling her to death. They then hide Savannah's body for a few days before dumping it in a local river and try to pass Savannah's baby off as their own. This is the thing they've been plotting for months and months and months. Savannah's body, body found by kayakers in the Red River, August 27, 2017, wrapped in garbage bags and had snagged on a log. Brooke Cruz sentenced to life without parole, February 2nd, 2018, for Savannah's murder. August 7th, 2019, William Hone sentenced to 20 years in prison for conspiracy to commit kidnapping, one year for lying to police, sentences that are running concurrently, uh, got a deal for testifying against, uh, you know, against uh, Brooke Cruz. Yeah, punishment was doled out in this case. And that way, as sick as this crime was, the victim at least got some justice, more justice than the majority of cases like Savannah where no one is ever arrested. Now, the Not Invisible Act introduced April 2nd, 2019. Four members of federally recognized tribes introduced this act. This act is a congressional act designed to address the crisis of violence and sexual violence committed against American Indian and Alaska Native men and women. This act accords the BIA to appoint a federal effort coordinator to combat violence against Native people, establish a joint commission on reducing violent crime against Indians within the DOI and DOJ, create a new position within the Interior Department for murder trafficking and missing Native Americans, form a joint advisory committee between the DOI and DOJ to solve these issues, coordinate prevention efforts, grants, and programs related to murder, trafficking, missing Native American people across federal agencies. The coordinator directed to work with outside organizations to tribal law enforcement, Indian health services providers, tribal community members on how to respond to report cases. Coordinator required to report to the Secretary of Interior in Congress. Has anything practical been accomplished because of this act yet that will actually fucking help the MMIW? No. November 26, 2019, Executive Order 13898, also called Operation Lady Justice, establishes a task force for missing and murdered indigenous people. The task force will focus on issues like data collection, policies, cold cases, and improved investigations. Former President Trump signed it, right? And the goals are who gives a fuck? Because it's not fucking helping anything, right? This is more guidelines, more like, hey, we got to keep talking about anything. Nothing is accomplished. It's a bunch of talk, a bunch of committees analyzing this problem, not acting in ways that are actually helpful. Indigenous people criticized the 2019 executive order because it was not it would not increase tribal authority to prosecute any offenders. October 10th, 2020, Savannah's Act becomes law. It requires the Department of Justice to review, revise, and develop policies that address MMIP cases, fucking blah, blah, blah. Congress enacted Savannah's Act to clarify responsibility of law enforcement agencies. And again, fucking blah, blah, blah. Just a bunch of talk, a bunch of data collection. You got to report better. Uh, and it's not going to be, actually be helpful. The same day, the Not Invisible Act uh, becomes law. Not Invisible Act requires the DOI to designate an official within the BIA, as I said earlier, to coordinate fucking bunch of bullshit. Who gives a fuck? Um, uh, as of uh, 2021, a government oversight study found that neither department uh, in, 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 you know, involved in these fucking new laws had met requirements or gave the recommendations that they were supposed to. Of course not. November 2020, Operation Lady Justice Task Force submits a progress report. Who gives a shit? 
task force is criticized for a lack of participation, lack of communication with the agencies who are supposed to fucking talk to. Nothing meaningful is accomplished again. This is just exercises in futility. Bunch of politicians smiling. Aha, signing stuff. Look at me. I sign stuff about an important issue. Ha, thumbs up. Fucking nothing happens. April 1st, 2021, 20, uh, Secretary of Interior Deb Haaland uh, announces the formation of the missing and murdered unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Justice Services, MMU, an extension of Operation Lady Justice. MMU meant to increase cooperation between the DOI and NAMIS, the U.S. Marshals Missing Child Unit and the FBI's BAU and Forensic Laboratory. Ah, has anything actually been improved? Not sure. Uh, the goals are gathering intelligence on active missing and murder cases, reviewing and prioritizing cases for assignment to investigative teams, developing investigative plans to guide investigators. How about you develop a fucking plan to change all the fucking laws that make this a jurisdictional nightmare or go fuck yourselves, right? This is just bunch more bullshit, bunch more bullshit. Tribes, you know, they need another committee making recommendations, more data collection, like they need fucking extra holes in their heads. May 4th, 2021, the White House issues a proclamation declaring each May 5th as a National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls. Still doesn't change the laws. Go suck a bag of dicks. Uh, I would read President Joe Biden's announcement, but it's fucking boring. And it doesn't provide solutions for jack shit. Uh, A lot of talk of being fully committed and making recommendations. I call on all Americans to support fucking yada, yada, yada. Uh, The case behind this proclamation, another sad tragedy, July 4th, 2013, 21-year-old Hannah Harris went to celebrate the upcoming holiday with her friends in Lame Deer, Montana, a little town of about 2,000 people, over 93% of them native, on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Hannah, a mother to a 10-year-old boy, sorry, 10-month-old boy, excuse me, member of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. Uh, She was with two people the night of July 3rd, Garrett Sidney Wada and Eugenia Ann Rowland. On July 4th, surveillance footage captured Hannah getting into their car, uh, surveillance footage showed, or her car, excuse me, surveillance footage showed Roland getting into the front passenger seat. Watt is in the back seat. Hannah didn't come home the next day. Her family reported her missing. They didn't feel like the police took the report seriously because they didn't. So they had to start searching themselves. Watt and Roland were interviewed, uh, had very inconsistent stories, still were free to leave and stay with relatives in Wyoming. Uh, Hannah's car then found abandoned with a flat tire on a dead end road. Her body found on July 8th, four days after she went missing in a ditch near the Lame Deer Rodeo Grounds. She'd been raped and badly beaten. Her family suspected the man and woman, Garrett and Eugenia, seen with her on surveillance footage, you know, as being involved in her death. Over seven months later, why did it take this long? March 26, 2014, Wada and Roland finally arrested in connection with Hannah's death. Wada charged with first-degree murder, aggravated sexual abuse. Roland charged with second-degree murder. Truth finally comes out. Roland and Wada were drinking with Hannah on July 3rd through the 4th. They got into an altercation. According to Roland, she and Wada both beat Hannah to death. Roland's sister-in-law spoke with police, said that Roland told her about the murder in January of 2014, said that after they were drinking in an abandoned trailer, she lost consciousness. She was woken up by yelling and screaming. She found Wada raping Hannah in another room, said she tried to help Hannah, but then Hannah hit her and that made her angry. So as any good rational person does, she joins the rapist in beating the woman who had just been raped. What a piece of shit. Two of them beat Hannah to death, wrap her in a sheet, drag her outside, then Wada moves her body to the ditch it would be found in. Authorities learned that Wada borrowed a relative's car, returned it with a strong odor, Hannah's DNA found in the car. October 31st, 2014, Eugenia Rowland and Garrett Wada plead guilty to the charges against them. Eugenia pleads guilty to a second-degree murder charge. Garrett Wada pleads guilty to being an accessory after the fact. He was charged with murder and aggravated sexual abuse, but those charges were dropped when he agreed to testify against Rowland. On February 12, 2015, Eugenia and Rowland sentenced to 22 years in federal prison. June 4th, 2015, Garrett Wada, the rapist and murderer, uh, 
sentenced to 10 years in prison. What the fuck is happening there? After Hannah's murder, the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, based in Lame Deer, Montana, started working with her family and the local congressional delegation to raise awareness of this crisis. March 15th, 2022, this year now, President, President Biden signed into law the Violence Against Women Act Reauthorization Act of 2022. And it recognizes, you know, a special tribal criminal jurisdiction over an expanded list of crimes, uh, assault of tribal justice personnel, child violence, obstruction of justice, sexual violence, sex trafficking, stalking, but doesn't allow them to punish any more than they were being punished earlier. Oh boy, uh, do tribal law enforcement agencies have more funding than they did before this law? No, not explicitly. Uh, what are we fucking doing here? The VAWA 2022 provisions went into effect October 1st, so just a few weeks ago. And they won't do a fucking thing. They're going to do nothing. We have to do more than study this problem. It's been around for far too long already. Enough studying. It is finally time to act. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. How frustrating. What a confusing mess, right? That just no one is fixing. Uh, before I share how I think we, we should act in a way that would actually be helpful, uh, a special sponsor that I don't like. I, I fucking hate this sponsor, but they pay a lot. So, you know, fuck them, but whatever. You know, I got to have money to keep this all going. <sighs> so uh, here we go. Time Suck is brought to you again today by Bear Evil Incorporated. <laughs> Bear recently acquired Meta Platforms Incorporated, a.k.a. Facebook. Why? To make money, of course, but also to shut down every fucking private cult of the curious Facebook group you ever try and create. We own Whipple. We own Woody. We'll shred him if we have to. We'll put him in the chipper. We paid David Childress to work for you even though you hate him. Soon we'll own Bad Magic Productions and we will shut it down. Why? Because we're fucking evil. And we don't only care about money right now. We crave destruction, chaos. We want the world to eat itself. We want to own humanity and we will so we can implode our own existence. We want to rip open a black hole and pull us all into the void, into the darkness, and let the creatures of death rule the living. We are also behind missing and murdered indigenous women. And who runs Bear Evil Incorporated? Who is behind such horror upon horror? Your fucking father, Danny. Your father is the founder of Bear Evil Incorporated. Oh, God, no! No! Oh, shit! Just when I thought Bear couldn't shock me anymore. Of course, my dad. God damn it. He founded Bear Evil Incorporated. He's behind this movement. <sighs> Sorry, I'll try not to let my dad distract me from finishing this very important episode. That's, that's what he wants. That's why he fucking bought that ad. God damn it. Okay, seriously, uh, done being a weird child who lives mostly inside his own head now for his own amusement for a second. How do we solve this crisis? How do we reduce the terrible stats that went over in the first half of this episode? Well, we can't erase history, but we can change things going forward. The amount of natives living on native land where most of these crimes against women do take place uh, I do not believe the numbers are growing, right? Uh, there's other issues to this, but to focus on the main part of this issue, despite a massive sense of census jump in the native population from 2010 to 2020, in 2020, the number of people who identified as Native American or Alaska Native alone, and in combination with another race, was 9.7 million, way up from 5.2 million in 2010. But most experts are not buying this as being indicative of tribes rebuilding their numbers. 
it seems that on census forms, more and more people are just picking AI or AN because they feel like they most identify with the tribes, even though they're 23andMe or Ancestry.com reports would say differently. Or they're of indigenous heritage, but from other places in the world like Guatemala. Not kidding. When a woman named Wen Calm filled out her census form uh, just in this, uh, this last census, 2020, she checked the box for Native American and the box for Latino, the 27-year-old from a small village in the Western Highlands of Guatemala, where most residents are indigenous. Cam, who lives in Oakland, said, well, we're not white. We're not black. This is as close as I can get. 30% of people identifying as indigenous uh, also identify as Latino. So why does this matter? Why am I bringing that up? Because in order to be part of a tribe and eligible for federal assistance and in order to live on a reservation and be subject to tribal laws, you have to be a tribe member. Most tribes require you be at least 25% native. The Eastern Band of Cherokee uh, only require a minimum of 116th degree of Cherokee Indian blood for tribal enrollment. And I think because of more and more tribal members leaving reservations and marrying and having kids with non-tribal members, it's going to get harder and harder for more people to qualify, which means that while people picking AI or AN identifying uh, uh, on a census form might increase, people actually enrolled as tribe members will very likely decrease, which will then make it harder than ever for tribes to argue for more federal funding on tribal lands or to, to get political power or to get extra state assistance decreasing tribal enrollment will make it harder and harder for law enforcement to get funding necessary to provide safety for remaining tribal women. And even the numbers were going up, the current mess of jurisdiction will be just as fucked up as it's ever been until the laws are drastically changed. Not these little bullshit, you know, oh, we're going to look into some stats acts. Oh, we're going to like, you know, have a coordinator appointed. Go fuck yourself. The maze of who is supposed to try and arrest, who will keep slowing down and preventing the level of law enforcement response and investigation the non-tribe members in the U.S. receive, right? It's just, it's, if it continues to exist, common sense will tell you that the rate of murdered and missing indigenous women will not ever change substantially. Why fucking would it? As long as enough sick fucks know they can have much better odds of hunting native women and getting away with it than other groups of women, they're not going to stop. In Canada, only 53% of indigenous women's homicides have been solved, drastically less than Canada's national solve rate of 84%. I provide U.S. stats, but I'm not sure they exist due to the shitty record keeping that we went over. I would bet my fucking life the solved murder rate is less in the U.S. than it is in Canada. So these perpetrators just keep going unpunished. As sad as it is to say, I just don't think the tribes currently have enough of a population base on reservations to ever be able to effectively govern themselves and keep their people, women especially, safe anymore when it comes to law enforcement. The time has passed for that. Colonialism and the racial, racist uh, prejudices uh, and unjust laws that came with it have stripped the tribes of their ability to do that for themselves. The largest reservation by population in the U.S. by far is the Navajo Nation I mentioned earlier, spread across Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, over 170,000 people. They have enough people to maybe set up a proper system of effective law enforcement if, again, the laws are changed to allow them to do so and have courts and prisons, right? Uh, you know, put people in prison for life, actually protect their people. Maybe 170,000 people is a small city. And that 170,000 are spread out across, as I said earlier, an area bigger than New Hampshire and Vermont combined. Wyoming has the smallest population of any state. Over 580,000 people, over three times as many as the Navajo Nation, and they have federal help in governing. Next to the Navajo Nation, Pine Ridge Reservation, straddling the border of South Dakota and Nevada, only 17,000 people. The fifth most populous reservation, less than 10,000 people. The Crow Indian Reservation I've talked about earlier, uh, around 7,000 people. These tribes that were supposed to function as sovereign nations with sovereign nation uh, within a sovereign nation, but never re were really allowed to. Well, now, if you take out emotion and look at things coldly and logically, it is painfully obvious 
I think that it's far too late to now allow them to be sovereign in a law enforcement way. And that's so fucking sad. It's so sad that realistically tribal nations as actual areas that are somewhat sovereign have been too wounded, too damaged, too assimilated, too terminated, too relocated and subjugated to ever return to any state of function as an actual sovereign nation within a sovereign nation capable of effectively building and managing a legal infrastructure robust enough to care for the safety of their people. How fucked up to destroy people so thoroughly that through uh, dishonest treaties, wars, forced assimilation and relocations, cultural destruction, etc., And all that after introducing diseases that wiped out over 90% of them, all that after destroying, you know, a game like the Buffalo that so many tribes depended on culturally and for substance, all that after eradicating the possibility of living with their lands and not off of the lands, and then letting their cultures wither on the vine for decades or centuries in some cases, scattered on reservations where they're kind of not really ever allowed to govern themselves. And then now to be like, oh, here's the keys to what's left of your kingdom. Uh, I know you had a majestic kingdom. Now you have like the equivalent of like a fucking dilapidated RVs. What a shameful thing America has done. And again, we can't change the past, but we can acknowledge it and improve the future. There is not enough uh, of the tribes to left to fully ex- expect them to run their own law enforcement system, complete with judges, courthouses, prisons, etc. It's time to break some more treaties, but now for something good to protect native peoples, to protect native women from adding to the ranks of the missing and the murder. It's time to fund proper law enforcement agencies with state and federal money on tribal lands. Fund them with enough money to actually protect and serve those communities. State-of-the-art precincts, new squad cars, right? Officers with all the latest gadgets and gear, same training that you not, you know, non-reservation U.S. folks benefit from. And, and do that in a way that respects the tribes. The chief of tribal police, you know, make him have to be appointed by tribal leaders to maintain a level of tribal oversight, just like chiefs of police are often appointed by the mayor or city councils, right? And, and do more along those lines. Allow tribal leaders to oversee a police force that has actual force that can arrest whoever the fuck it needs to arrest, that can pursue criminals for any crimes and quickly making moves in those first 48 to 72 crucial hours. But don't continue on this bullshit path of kind of letting tribes have law enforcement, but not really like they're playing fucking house, a path of never really infringing on their sovereignty while also shitting on their sovereignty completely and constantly. This weird ongoing gray area. Who is it helping? Who's happy with it as it stands now? Tribes should have been viewed as equals from the beginning, but they weren't. But we can all be equal now and all receive an equal degree of law enforcement and protection. If anyone has a better idea on how to truly help the MMIW uh, movement in a practical, meaningful way and not just fucking establish more committees for fucking data collection, I would love to hear it. Send in an update to Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Let's recap and hit those takeaways now. Uh, in 1492, Christopher Columbus and his crew arrived on what they call the island of Hispaniola. And they were fucking dicks. Uh, they met the Tayano people. But then sadly, they soon murdered, raped, and enslaved. Christopher Columbus, while heralded as the discoverer of the New World, and it was also an original contributor to the MMIW crisis, evidence to show that he knew about, maybe even participated in the trafficking of indigenous women and girls. There were thousands of others like him in the early years, much, many worse, uh, or many, much worse, excuse me. The colonizers of the first land in the U.S. and Canada were met with seemingly infinite land and natural resources, resources willing to be shared in many cases by people who had already lived there for thousands of years. Unlike what they were used to, many women were in charge of these resources. European Christians appalled by indigenous culture and societal structure. Native American women became their primary targets uh, of a lot of disgust and hatred. As many researchers have noted, the conquest of land reflected in violence towards women. Conquest of them as well. European settlers given carte blanche initially by the Vatican to take everything. Take the land and resources. Take the women. 
right? Viewed, viewed as some of those resources. Early colonizer characterized indigenous women as extremely sexual and violent, right? Hello, psychological projection. The colonizers were extremely sexual and violent. When the British and French arrived at the U.S. and Canada in later years, they already had the stereotype in their minds when they interacted with native peoples. At first, the settlers treated the tribes uh, as their own sovereign nations with full authority over their affairs. But after the formation of the U.S., when the government was eager to expand their territory, they quickly enacted laws that gave them authority over tribal land. And, you know, reservations became sovereign only in theory. In the 1800s, various Supreme Court decisions and new laws made tribal land the property of the U.S. government, gave them governmental jurisdiction over certain crime areas. But not all. What the fuck? Instead of Native Americans being able to punish people who committed crimes on their land, the government was responsible for prosecution and convictions. In many cases, violence against indigenous people went unpunished. A confusing maze of who had jurisdiction, you know, over what tribal lands ensued, who was being properly funded. No one. More and more laws transferring jurisdiction to the states and federal government and away from tribes passed in the 20th century that didn't help anything. Passed in the 21st century, still not fucking helping anything. Violence towards tribe members, especially on tribal lands, continues to go largely unpunished. Various laws combined with racism and prejudice towards indigenous people has led directly to the MMIW crisis. Crimes against indigenous women go underreported, underprosecuted, leading many offenders to feel confident they can kidnap, rape, murder indigenous women with impunity. New laws like the Non-Invisible Act, Savannah's Act, the Violence Against Women Act eh, made efforts to fill in data gaps to maybe try and fix jurisdictional issues. They haven't. To try and restore prosecutorial jurisdiction to the tribes, haven't. Nothing substantial has been actually changed. And this current jurisdictional maze, uh, you know, until it's straightened out, the MMIW crisis will just inevitably continue. Time now for our top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the MMIW crisis began centuries ago during the age of exploration. European monarchs sent ships full of people to the New World to explore the land, find gold and other valuable resources, and see who was living in unexplored territory. This led to high rates of physical and sexual violence. Almost immediately, men took land and resources from indigenous people, and in many cases, raped and forced women and girls into sexual slavery. The documented examples of this horrific violence that we do have most likely barely uh, scratched the surface of the pain and suffering indigenous people likely went through at the hands of these early colonizers. Number two, when the early colonists first interacted with indigenous people, they treated them as sovereign nations who had full authority over their land and legal systems. As centuries have passed, the government has enacted laws to shift jurisdiction to the federal government and state governments. Tribal courts often can't prosecute those who harm indigenous people on tribal land, and if they do, they are limited in their sentencing abilities. Severely. Because of jurisdictional confusion when investigating MMIW cases, it makes it easier for victims of violent crimes to slip through the cracks. State and local law enforcement don't always keep track of their MMIW data. Or they misclassify victims. This has contributed to the crisis and may make perpetrators target indigenous people because they think they can get away with it. Number three, the majority of indigenous people in the U.S. Does, do not actually live on reservations. They are called urban Indians and they live off tribal lands and in U.S. cities. US cities. Although they make up the majority of the indigenous population in the U.S., they're often not the focus of federal legislation, funding, and other resources. Number four, indigenous women living on reservations are murdered at a rate 10 times greater than women of other ethnicities. 10 times murder the third leading cause of death for indigenous women. Number five, new info. The symbol of the MMIW movement is a red handprint. Many people wear red clothing or paint a red handprint over their mouths to show support for the MMIW movement. The editorial staff of nativehope.org wrote, 
A red hand over the mouth has become the symbol of a growing movement, the MMIW movement. It stands for all the missing sisters whose voices are not heard. It stands for the silence of the media and law enforcement in the midst of this crisis. It stands for the oppression and subjugation of Native women who are now rising up to say, hashtag no more stolen sisters. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Blood on the reservation, missing and murdered indigenous women has been sucked. Damn, I learned so much. A lot of shocking information about uh, so many people who live so near to me and who have lived near to me for most of my life. Uh, even studying tangential topics in the past, like the Trail of Tears, Trail of Tears, uh, so many native wounds I didn't know about. Man, what a shameful history. What a current fucking mess. I hope some new path can be forged going forward. This path that the uh, <laughs> law enforcement confusion that the tribes now live under is just such nonsense. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, thank you, as always, to everyone involved, starting with the Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, doing so much to let me do this research on topics like these. And again, happy birthday to the beautiful birthday girl. She turned, uh, she's turned 21. She's 21 years old. Uh, thanks to Logan Keith, uh, the, the art warlock, for directing and producing today, even though he has had uh, morning sickness. He, I think he might be pregnant. No, but he has been dealing with something in the mornings. Hopefully he's going to figure it out soon. He's been coming in here and pushing through. And thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., helping with production, cutting clips from the episodes for socials. Thanks to the Elixir team for upkeep on the TimeSuck app. The Art Warlock again for creating merch at badmagicmerch.com. Remember that Triple M? Never forget that uh, t-shirt pitch. Oh, night. I could have chosen a different Christmas song. Holy night. Holy home. Holy bright. Uh, yeah, they're creating merch at badmagicmerch.com for helping run our socials along with our Suck Ranger, Tyler C., and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Olivia Lee for the initial research this week. She fucking killed it. Had a, uh, pulled from a lot of other places other than those main sources for stats. Thanks to the All Seen Eyes who moderate the Cult of the Curious private, uh, Cult of the Curious 2 private fa- Facebook page, or did before it went into Tiago Purgatory. And again, if Tiago doesn't, uh, let us return from the dead soon, we'll move on to the Cult of the Curious 3. Already in the works, and again, so many other places to go to. Thanks to the Mod Squad making Discord, so many people there having fun. Thanks to everyone at the Time Sucks subreddit, Bad Magic subreddit, another place to go. Reddit never uh, shutting down. Discord never shut down. Uh, good time to head over there, or you can just do again some keyword searches uh, within Facebook for a variety of private groups. I know a lot of people like the Facebook structure the best. You know, start with Cult of the Curious. Maybe just put Time Suck, put in Lucifina or Bojangles. So many groups you can find. Uh, next week, in honor uh, this month featuring Veterans Day, we tackle one of our biggest topics to date, World War II. Though we've certainly explored the conflict in several episodes, most recently our two-part series on the Holocaust, this time we're sucking the conflict in its entirety, from the battlefields of Europe to the bitter fight for the Pacific Islands. Hard to overstate how massive this conflict uh, was. Between 1939 and 1945, more than 50 nations in the world were fighting, with more than 100 million soldiers deployed. By the end of the war, an estimated 50 million would be dead, including 18 million Russians and 20% of Poland's former population. Fuck. Around the world, people had to confront the ugly truth that their beloved children would not be coming home, that their families had fallen victim to horrific bombing campaigns, that the war had changed the shapes of their lives forever. So many paid the ultimate price for freedom. But a necessary price, very necessary when you look at who the Allies were up against and what kind of world they would have shaped had the Axis powers triumphed. On the one hand, you had Hitler, the subject of many sucks 
and his plan to take over Europe for Aryan living space, his program of racial purity and hatred of others, particularly Jewish people, would lead the Nazis to conquer European nations one by one and establish the infamous and horrific death camps we covered in our Holocaust sucks. While European leaders thought that Hitler might be appeased or compromised with, this quickly proved out not to be true, as the Nazis conquered Denmark, Norway, the Low Countries, Belgium in quick succession. It was the fall of France to the Nazis that would galvanize the British to act, fearing an invasion, and led by the indomitable Winston Churchill, the British would begin to repel the Nazis during the Battle of Britain. And all the democracy seemed to hang in the balance. Meanwhile, the Allies would find themselves running up against another formidable opponent across the world, Imperial Japan. In the early 20th century, Japan set its sights on becoming an empire. While this military expanded Japan's land holdings, the culture became increasingly militaristic, priding itself on unity, sacrifice for the nation, obedience. To become a true empire, however, they'd have to have access to resource-rich areas in the Pacific, especially oil. Galvanized by anti-Western sentiment and a strong sense of cultural superiority, Japan would develop a plan to become the rulers of the Pacific, the masters of a pan-Asian empire that was actually about Japanese supremacy. Much like Hitler's Nazis, the Japanese military would prove to be brutal opponents, and the shocking bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, would bring the U.S. into a two-front war that seemed unimaginable just a few years earlier. Next week, we'll begin our coverage of World War II with the war in Europe, then move to the Pacific the following week for an equally bloody second part. Along the way, we'll meet people both inspiring and terrifying, leaders that commanded their countries for better or for worse, and the many individuals who fought for a better world because the other option was to live in a world ruled by savage oppression and tyranny, uh, much worse than the acts that we have committed. Now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Thought-provoking Sack Caleb, not real name, has some thoughts provoked for us. He writes, "Uh, Dear Suck Nasty, the third Esquire, I want to first start by saying I had a wonderful time seeing you live recently where you played for a second time on my Misophonia. And thank you for involving me in your show and signing my three out of five stars sign again. Uh, I want to go ahead and get to the meat and potatoes of this email. This is about the Cannibal Cop episode little background about me first. For starters, I am a cop. I have been for nearly 10 years. And before anyone makes any rash judgments, this email is not about whether cops are good or bad or anything like that. I'm not defending the cannibal cop. I merely want to speculate on the underlying theme of the topic. Is it okay to fantasize about a crime? The truth of the matter is I don't know. And there's no simple answer to that question. In fact, this entire topic is very gray and there's no one right answer. On the one hand, yes, we need to stop these maniacs as soon as we can. On the other hand, what crime was committed? Other than stalking and misuse of a criminal database for that crime, he should absolutely be prosecuted for those infractions. You can't do that. That's a gross misuse of a trusted private database. I understand this will not be a popular opinion, but I'm playing devil's advocate here. I have a hard time convicting him of anything else. Now, let me be clear. This is not to say I don't think he's a huge piece of trash. He doesn't deserve to be skinned alive uh, because evidence points to that. But the evidence is just circumstantial. And we have to put aside our own personal beliefs and look at the facts of the case. Not just this case. Because my fear is a case like this will make a landmark decision and then become commonplace. If someone has a social media page that condemns any religion, should it be taken down? Is there a religion that is okay to condemn? What if it's a race, a nationality, a political alignment? Where does freedom of speech end and bigotry begin? I do not know. I do not pretend to know. And what leads me to my next point? What is free speech? Or, and that leads me. Are we truly allowed to say what we want? What if someone wants to say what they want to execute this politician or that one? Is it never okay? Or is it if it only aligns with your preferences. Sadly, I think the latter has become true in this world. We seem to have become fuck you and your opposing beliefs, not no matter what the belief is. This is the part where you all hate me. Uh, is being a racist, bigoted, closed-minded, religious nut okay? No, of course not. 
but is that your right to be one? Is the freedom of speech also the freedom to be wrong? There are obviously limits to what can be said or done, but where are those limits? We say, we uh, well, it's hate speech, but what is hate speech? How many times have the Cult of the Curious Facebook pages been suspended because it didn't agree uh, with seemingly one guy's opinions? Where is the line? Uh, you spoke of George Carlin a few weeks ago, and I went back and listened to one of his interviews. He was right. We have the illusion of choice. Where does it end? When is it enough? I do not have these answers. I only want to bring this up to provoke thought and discussion. Stay fresh, meat sack. Always question the status quo. I love you and wish you nothing but the best for you and your family. P.S. If you read this on air, keep me anonymous. Say my name is Caleb or some bullshit. Live long and suck on Caleb. Well, uh, fake Caleb, uh, I love your message so much. There's a lot to address. I won't be able to address it all. Uh, I am in your camp. Uh, it's a camp that does piss some people off. I, I definitely lean towards the most free speech we can possibly have. Asterix, I'll explain that. I absolutely think you should be able to say whatever you want to say as long as what you're saying does not lead to substantial harm for someone else. Right? Like if you're saying, I don't think the Pope knows fuck all about what God wants for anyone on earth, or I think the Pope's a fucking con man. Fine. Inflammatory to many, but fine. You're right to express that opinion. That's what free speech is about, I think to me. But if you're posting online about how the Pope needs to die, and not in a vague sense, we got to kill the Pope. We must kill the Pope. We got to shoot the Pope in the Vatican on such and such date. I have the gun ready. Please meet me at this place in the Vatican. <laughs> you go back and forth with others who talk about how they want to kill the Pope. You formulate a fucking plan to kill the Pope, right? Or somebody reads your posts, then kills the Pope. Well, now your words have led directly to harm. Or, or also you, you, you build up, um, you know, a case to kill the Pope. Bunch based on a bunch of stuff the Pope hasn't definitely been proven to have done. Well, that is like a definite defamation now, right? And uh, you know, and, and there should be some accountability. In, in the example of the Pope getting killed, there should be you know some criminal punishment. You're no longer merely expressing thoughts. You're calling for a crime to be committed. And I think that was the whole dilemma with the cannibal cop, right? That we talked about. Should Gil Valley, you know, have been able to fantasize with others about eating women? Yes, and he was allowed in the end by the court. Uh, you know, he could fantasize about eating women, raping women, kidnapping, killing women. I think he should be able to fantasize about all of that and any other thing. But when he added photos of real women, he surveilled in real life when he was looking up women's addresses, that's when he went into this legal gray area and why he was found guilty by the first jury, right? It starts to look less like a fantasy, more like a plan, a plan to commit a crime, right? Had he shared any of the addresses with his dark net cohorts, I think he should be in prison right now for the rest of his life, charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping at the very least, you know, do I think the Cold of the Curious private Facebook page should have been shut down? No one was, you know, there was no fucking criminal plans being put there. No, I don't think it should have been. I do understand why Facebook did it. It's not the government. It's a private enterprise. You know, they don't have enough humans to keep track of what people are posting. Don't have enough time to listen to hours and hours of podcasts. And understand the sarcastic and absurdist nature of it. Their AI bots just see horrible shit being said. And they're not in on the jokes. And they have to think about the total number of customers, which is really what their members are and play to the masses to successfully run their business. I, I do get it. I don't like it, but I get it. Uh, with Carlin, that quote, I think Carlin was wrong about the illusion of choice. I think we have unlimited choices virtually around us. Um, they just happen to have consequences. I don't think choice is the illusion. I think freedom is. We do not have true freedom. We never have, and I hope we never do. Uh, with what I know about human nature. When punishment is taken off the table, like when the colonizers were given carte blanche to do as they wish with indigenous people, well, a lot of evil shit happens. I don't want true freedom. It's just, you know, the the trick of, you know, society is how to manage freedom with safety. Um, yeah, thank you, Caleb. It, it was a lot to think about. 
And yes, as always, question the status quo. Hail Nimrod. And, uh, and regarding law enforcement, thanks for doing what you do. Now, uh, before I try and just off the top of my head, go another two hours of an episode <laughs> thinking about other things Caleb just uh, wrote out. Uh, I want to share a crazy connection to an old suck. Episode 103, the public suicide of Bud Dwyer and the tragic events that led up to it. It comes in from Butterfly Affected Sack, David Anderson, who wrote, Dear Master Sucker, O Sultan of the Suck, Sage of Suction, Sovereign of Sucktitude, Magistrate of Mushmouthry, Purveyor of Perplexing Pronunciations and Seeker of Nimrod's Wisdom. Well done. My name is David, and I was introduced to the Suck several months ago by a good friend I met on Reddit, also named David, a.k.a. Uh, Bitey's Dad. I was uh, B-I-T-E-Y-S. I was immediately hooked upon listening to the first episode you recommended, 156, decided to start at the beginning of the catalog, work my way forward. Originally listened to the R. Bud Dwyer suck and was absolutely enthralled. It was incredibly informative and the story has a direct tie to my family. In a bonus, in bonus episode 26, a time sucker update regarding the R. Bud Dwyer suck, I was completely caught off guard to hear an update from none other than one of my youth leaders at the church I attended growing up. In his update, he referred to a friend and mentor who was dating Dee Dee at the time of Bud's suicide. That friend and mentor is my father. I don't know for how long they were dating or how serious things were, but I know that the events of Bud's death was a catalyst for she and my father's relationship ending. And if that relationship hadn't have ended, if Bud hadn't have taken his own life, my father almost certainly would have never have met my mother and I would almost certainly not exist. To reiterate some info from the previous update, my father maintains to this day that he believes Bud was entirely innocent. On top of that, his sacrifice contributed directly or indirectly to my own life. I thought this was worth mentioning. If for nothing else, just illustrate how our actions can ripple through time and space. I do not in any way condone suicide, but I cannot help but see Mr. Dwyer's suicide as a completely unique case of ultimate sacrifice for his family. Thank you for continually feeding my desire to learn and for taking the time to read this. Much love from the state of PA. Sincerely, not apologizing for the long message. Your ever loyal suck puppet, David Anderson. <laughs> and I love how you added a pronunciation guide for David Anderson. That's very funny. Uh, David, uh, what a wild message, man. Uh, crazy. You would not be here. You would never have written that message about that episode. Never listened to it. Had the tragic event not occurred, the event that drew me to that topic, your dad would have not met your mom. It is mind-blowing when you think about all the choices that have led to the current collective reality we all share, right? A missed stoplight here, a missed flight there, uh, not going to the doctor and getting something diagnosed and detected in time here, losing a coin toss you won uh, and ended up, you know, and now you end up doing A instead of doing B. Some, some tiny choice can affect an entire family tree just forever from that point forward. Other tiny choices can affect, can affect the entire fate of humanity, right? Some despot, you know, narrowly avoiding stepping into traffic. But if they would have stepped into traffic, the world would look so different for us all. It's fucking really crazy, David. Thanks for sending that message in. More stuff to think about. Uh, now let me share a message of crushed nuts from higher pitched sucker, Matt, who writes, oh dear suck master. It's going to be a short one, but I had to let you know I was listening to the recent Crips and Bloods episode, happily laughing away at your tire and glue diatribe about how far you were taking that. I was also chuckling to myself, wondering if anyone has fallen for this and prided myself on having never been got. Then as you're about to explain how crack made it to South Central, you start your bare pharmaceutical ad and the roar literally made me jump like three fucking feet, locking the seatbelt, put a hurting on my nethers. I can only thank God my wife was in the car. I would never hear the end of it. Thanks for a bigger scare than anything you could bring on Scared to Death. <laughs> You're a bad magician's apprentice, Matt. I wonder how many people that bear button gets, Matt. Just <laughs> coming out of nowhere sometimes. Well, I hope your balls are okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks for sending that message. It was funny to think about. And finally, let's end on something else uh, light. From a top shelf sack, 
riddled with venereal disease now. Paul Albano, who writes, I bid thee suck Master Dan of House Cummins. Noise. The first of his name, leader of the Space Lizards and the Meat Sacks and the Time Suckers, lord of the podcast and protector of all things under Nimrod. Good morrow. All right, enough with the pleasantries, Cummins, you mushmouth maniac. You Cummins laud me again, but in the most beautiful and unpredictable way. On my drive into work, I was listening to the Bloody Harps episode. You along, your elongated description of what the Bloody Harps look like made me curious. So when I got to my office, I decided to do a Google image search on my phone. As I hit enter, my coworker walked in to speak with me. So I set my phone down on my desk, visible for everyone to see. I think ladies love cool James described the theory of relativity uh, best in the Academy Award winning, I assume I didn't research it, role of Sherman Preacher Dudley in the 1999 smash hit movie Deep Blue Sea when he said, Einstein's theory of relativity. Grab hold of a hot pan. Second can seem, uh, seconds can seem like an hour. Put your hands on a hot woman. An hour can seem like a second. It's all relative. That's a very funny quote. Uh, well, I tell you that the few brief seconds that transpired between my coworker and myself felt like an eternity. I mean it. I saw his eyes shift innocently down to my desk while he was talking. Noticed the brief confusion wash away into shock and then ultimately disgust and dismay. His eyes then snap back to mind uh, where he is now clearly feeling different. There was a complete tonal shift. He got fidgety and nervous and quickly made his exit. I was a bit confused. I reached over and picked up my phone. <laughs> and that was when I noticed that my Google image search had been auto-corrected to bloody herpes. <laughs> oh my God. What images of horror. Oh, that's so fucking funny. Love your show. <laughs> Keep doing what you do. <laughs> Five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Paul Albano. Paul, oh, man, Paul. Good luck with those bloody herpes, man. Once they get really bloody, you've uh, you've really hit the final stages. Uh, no, you can probably you can probably fucking lotion it up. I don't know. Good luck. Good luck. No, I don't. I know you don't really have it, but good luck explaining to that coworker. Good luck sharing a soda can with that coworker going forward. <laughs> Thanks everybody for the messages. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast is complete. Please don't fuck with any indigenous women in any way this week. How about just swinging through some tribal lands, maybe buying some shit from their businesses like a normal person. Be cool to everyone you see like you're supposed to be to everybody. Maybe donate to one of the many tribal causes this week if you want to be extra nice. And when it comes to the ongoing crisis of MMIW, help solve it by continuing, if nothing else, to keep on sucking. Dashing through the snow on a one horse over sleigh, over fields we go, driving away. Sleigh, I saw. 
Maar een bal tegen me. Maar de volgende toe volgens me. En dan ging ik hem op een En dan ging ik hem op een slijf. En dan ging ik hem op een slijf. En dan ging ik hem Nailed it! Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.